Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey. I'm broken, apparently. I'm broken. Paused, I'm broken. Stopped, I'm paused. You know, you know, you know. I'm broken. You know, I'm paused a little bit, Jason. You're trying to read my hat. I, I've got two things for you. One. Huh? Happy birthday to you. You live in a zoo. You look like a monkey. You act like one too. Little happy belated birthday to Jason Thank Johnston you. Yellen. Cheers. Is this the uh, is this the big fifty three for you? What is this? <laughs> if you listen to my kids, I'm in my eighties, but yeah, <laughs> I'm a I'm a whopping forty eight. Forty eight. Look at that. I'm now as old as you, Joshua. Not for long. Halfway to ninety six. Six months. Yeah, six months. Uh, the other thing uh, that that really paused me here is I've got a bit of a bone to pick with you. Checks out. I woke up the other day. In- oh, easy. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. These are not coming together nicely. I woke up the other day incredibly mad at you. Awesome. I I had this terrible dream that you invited me to some like NPR event. <laughs> and it was one of these, you know how much I just, I, I abhor oh. Garrison Keillor and Lake Wobegon <laughs> and, and all that. I have always hated that show. I've found it as unfunny as can be. It's like that old Simpsons bit. Where where Homer's watching the television and Garrison Keillor's on there and every he's talking and everybody's laughing and he doesn't understand why and and I'll just play the clip. Well, sir, it has been an uneventful week in Badger Falls, where the women are robust, the men are pink cheeked, and the children are pink cheeked and robust. <laughs> what the hell's so funny? At the Apple Biscuit Cafe, where the smiles are free, don't you know, Sven Inquist studied the menu, and finally he ordered the same thing he has every day. <laughs> Maybe it's the TV. But TV, be more funny! So you were the Homer Simpson in that clip. That's telling. Uh, Very telling. Listen, he's Very not, telling. he's not a perfect man. Sometimes I identify with him. But listen, so so you invited me to this like Lake Wobegon esque live NPR <laughs> event. But what was happening at the same night, a little later on, was a Bonnie Prince Billy show. Oh. And so the plan was we would go, we would do the NPR thing, and then we would go see Bonnie Prince Billy. But we had to get a ride because we were planning on drinking. And so I invited someone from my synagogue for some reason to drive us. Again, this is all a dream. And she drove us. She said, I will go to the NPR thing, but I'm not going to go to uh, Bonnie Prince Billy. I said, okay, that's fine. So she drives us to the NPR thing, and we're watching it. And as expected, I absolutely hated it. And so I, t- I shot you a text. I said, this is, this is just awful. I'm going to leave. And on the way out, I accidentally almost knocked over all the sound equipment. I almost destroyed the show. But anyway. Ac- accidentally. <laughs> and so I leave the show. And as time goes on, I'm texting you saying, is, is the show over? Can we go to the Bonnie Prince Billy show now? And you weren't answering. 
And I kept on asking. <laughs> that definitely sounds like me. <laughs> and I kept asking. And then I decided to ask something else at this point. I don't remember what it was, but you answered that question, but you wouldn't answer my Bonnie <laughs> Prince Billy question. And you ended up just ditching me for the night. And I woke To go hang out with Garrison Keeler, who is much, much cooler than <laughs> yeah, Joshua Hatton. No. Much cooler. The words cool and Garrison Keeler do not, they never go. I can't believe you forced me to put those into the same sentence. Anyway, I woke pe- pe- up. People not in America are loving this right now. I loving. woke up so angry with you for forcing me to go see this Garrison Keeler thing and then ditching me. To go to Barney Prince Billy and not even bringing me to that show. So I'm, I like I woke up mad. I was mad at you the whole day. Well, I tell you what's the saddest part of this tale is that Garrison Keillor is a huge fan of One Nation to Whiskey. <laughs> huge. He writes in all the time, commenting on the latest episodes, <laughs> just talking about your contribution. Like, oh wow, he's going to be so disappointed when he hears this. Oh crap. If, Garrison, if you do listen to the show, I, <laughs> I, I apologize. Hey, look, look, people like you. I'm not your, I'm not your, you know, demographic, demographic? I guess. Yeah. There you go. At what point in the day did you start to, to think fondly of me once more? Well, so that was on the Tuesday. What day, <laughs> what day is that? I've almost forgiven you. I've almost forgiven you. Okay, we're getting there. Several days later, we're almost, we're almost there. All right. How you doing, Jason? I'm all right. I'm all right. I've still got a little bit of the, uh, the old COVID residuals. I've got a little dry cough that continues to haunt me. All right. I I was on a course of steroids that was starting to do quite well after five days. Fortunately, it was only a five day course, and so after a few days of not having the steroids. I uh, I started having the cough return again, and mm. so I'll return to the doctor, and I'll I'll get a ten day course and get this little dry tickle. But the the reason I bring it up, and I'm, okay. I'm not just yep. I'm not just listing my medical maladies <laughs> um, for sympathy, but I know a number of people who have a lingering dry cough, mm. and some have had COVID, and some have not. And so I would say oh. to you, if you have a if you have a lingering dry cough, be a little careful. Go to your doctor. Go speak to somebody hmm. about it, because there is a little bit of chatter around the long COVID people getting long COVID, without necessarily having COVID symptoms previously. That's so this is a this is a yeah. medical a medical PSA from Jason, who is not a doctor, but I'm just saying. Take care of your health because it's the only one you have. I, I would say the gentle lingering cough, and it was just this every once in a while, right? It just like you go, <laughs> you know, it just it comes oh. on you unexpected. It didn't come out right, but people know <laughs> that's what I mean. a hell of a statement. Uh-huh. Get that in a t-shirt. But uh, literally, it's a bitch to get off. It, it is. But yeah, I, I would say the the little cough that I had lasted about a month. Maybe five mm. weeks almost, mm-hmm. and then it and then it finally went away. And and I'll tell you, I'll tell you this really quickly. Mm-hmm. So normally over the Fourth of July holiday, um, uh, Haida and I and, and the kids we we join some friends. They have a a house up up on a beach in Maine, and we were going to join them. And then 
my buddy Jake, the husband, got COVID. And then his wife, Jen, got COVID. And then one of their daughters got COVID. And, and the whole time we're like, should we still go? Because we just had the COVID. Yeah, you you all feel like superhumans right, we, at we that feel point. Like super- like, let us in. We're fine. We got 90 days. And the, and the fact of the matter is, I've got three shots in me. I just had COVID. But I'm nervous about a potential variant. Not because I think I'm going to get incredibly sick. Thank God. But I don't want to deal with the potential of losing my nose and palate again. That was so incredibly disconcerting. And, and, and I know, you know, some people lose it for two, three days. Some people five days. Some people months. Some people still haven't gotten it back. And some people not at all. Yeah. And so, right. And, and so we decided not to take the chance. And we actually ended up going to Montreal for, for a few days and celebrated the 4th of July in another country. <laughs> you ever done that in your life before? Never. Never, ever. Never? No. Nope. Yeah, July 4 is not one that you tend to be out of the country for, even though nope. it falls kind of early summer. It's, yeah, it's no, still it's... one to be home for, local fireworks, local parades. Yeah, I'm an American. I, I stick around for 4th of July, but you know, we said, maybe not this year. Maybe we go to Canada this year. <laughs> And my daughters were happy about that. So it was a very good trip. Uh, Well, talking about trips and talking about Jason being out of communication and not answering text messages. um, After you and I in Single Cast Nation did the Selway Bitterroot Frank Church Mm -hmm. Foundation collaborative Mm -hmm. bottling last year, I endeavoured to make my way into either the Selway Bitterroot or the Frank Church this year. Yeah. And so I closed out my June by volunteering my time, trail clearing, in the Frank Church Wilderness in in Ohio. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) We spent an entire week surrounded by Idahoans who say, yeah, all the time people are like, Oh, you're from Ohio? No, no, Idaho. Oh, Ohio. <laughs> no, Idaho. And then I just went and said yeah. it. Oh, God, yeah. I feel so foolish. Yeah. I'm so thoroughly embarrassed. Oh, I was expecting but- Iowa instead of Ohio. <laughs> right? <laughs> anyway, continue. <laughs> uh, actually, one of, one, of the, one of the people... So if you remember last year, we worked with Alyssa. Alyssa has moved on. Yeah. Oh, and we now work yeah. with, with a, a woman called Caitlin, who is... Who's, equally lovely and and a pleasure to deal with and she's originally from florida and now lives in idaho Mm -hmm. and her family asked her how is life in the midwest (laughs) well see yeah okay let me ask you this so it's it's clearly not the midwest it's the inland northwest ah that's what i was gonna ask right because you've got the pacific northwest which is your your washington oregon's and so it's the inland northwest. Ah. Indeed. Indeed, indeed. It, so, it. Okay. Um, yeah, it was a, a remarkable experience. Um, my friend Moscow Jim, who I've, I've mentioned previously, and we, he was the reason for the collaboration. Um, he treated us incredibly well mm-hmm. as camp cook. And Wait, there was... Cook or cook? 
<laughs> it's that's a very good point you raise actually. <laughs> um, he was he was more cook than cook to be honest. So I, I still am to, not hearing the difference between the two words. <laughs> so hold on, C O O K or K O O K? Just be clear, he was not camp cook. <laughs> Just to be triply That sure. was your part. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> what we're talking about. But no, we would, we would have coffee at 6 a.m. Yeah. We would pack up lunch for taking on the trail um, after he'd made us breakfast. Um, and then when we come back, we would have appetizers somewhere around 4 and then dinner around 5, 5.30. Hmm. And it was, it was phenomenal. We were treated better than anybody should be treated in the wilderness. Um, but I, I, I want to make clear here, the use of wilderness was so important and um, nothing mechanized is allowed within the boundaries of what's designated as wilderness. So as much as we were clearing trails and mm-hmm. sawing trees and digging trenches and doing, doing a whole host of work, nothing was automated. It was all manual. So whose whose rule is that? Is that the rule of the group because you want it to be close to nature, or is that the rule of Selway Bitterroot? That's the rule of designation for wilderness in the United States of America. Wilderness actually has a very specific um. meaning when applied to a landmass. So what you'll find is there's a lot of national forests. Yeah. National forests are not wilderness. National forests allow chainsaws. They allow motorized vehicles. They allow ATVs. So that's national forests, separate from wilderness. So even though we may Ah. offhandedly say, I'm off into the wilderness, just to mean like the woods, the forests, the mountains, wilderness actually has a clear designation. Wow. So so you didn't have your phone on you. You didn't have anything. I mean, you were incommunicado. I was a bit scared to send you texts because I didn't know if you'd receive them and be tempted to look. At, not that you're actually tempted to ever look at texts, but you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> I think you've mistaken me for someone else, no, my dude. It, 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 like still, like <laughs> just in case I didn't want to text you. Um, no, there are no towers anywhere. So our... Our volunteer group leader had a satellite phone on her. She had to check in twice a day for safety. Wow. And she had a satellite phone. That was it. I I didn't have my Apple Watch. I didn't have my phone, iPad, laptop. If I had, they would have just been hunks of metal taking up space because there was no way to charge them. There was no way to get service to them. Yeah, this was this was complete wow. backwoods wilderness. Oh, it was so good. I'm already signed up for next year. It was so good. Oh, so really quickly, this is my final follow-up question for you. <laughs> Did that Now, I I know you are perfectly fine just being away from all texts and telephone devices like that is that's how you run your weekends right but mm-hmm. being 100% detached was there any part of you that was a little bit nervous about that at least on the outset and then you were cool with it or did you have this sort of low-lying 
ooh, that's I'm kind of uneasy about that. How did you feel overall? So I I made this this comparison to I think I think Jess uh, earlier this week when we met, and you know when we lead a whiskey geek tour, yeah, and and we end up having some some high achieving folk on those tours. Hmm, high achieving, and, I, like, I like that terminology. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, people who are used to being in charge, exactly. people who are used yeah. to yeah. handing out schedules, yes. people who are used to telling other people where to be and when to be there. Yep. So high achieving, and. We tell them nothing. Nothing. We give them no details. And for the first day, you keep getting, where are we going today? What are we doing today? Where do we need to be today? What time do we need to be in the van today? What time will we be back in the van today? And then where will we go? And how long will the journey? And and we always say, look, sit back, relax. We've done this plenty of times. You'll be you'll be golden. And they kind of harumph a little bit because <laughs> they're not used to being in that position. Uh-huh. And then by day two, they're asking some of the same questions, but not all the same questions. And invariably by day seven, when we're concluding the tour, they say, thank you so much. (laughs) That was amazing. (laughs) I have not been that unplugged, that relaxed, that chill for I don't even know how long. When I was first unplugged, it was like, okay, there's there's a there's a company out there being <laughs> being run. Like, okay, I'm, uh-huh. I'm not talking to Joshua. I'm not talking to Jess. I'm not talking to Elijah. Like, oh, this is going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And and you know, being out there, I'd be like, oh yeah, there was that project that needed attention, and mm-hmm. hopefully someone will take a look at that while I'm away. And by the end of day two. All of that oh, just good. That's good. flowed away. Yep. Um, and because it was such physical labor, it was really nice to just say, okay, here's a log. It needs to be manually cut. And then we need to get it moved. And do we push it uphill? Do we push it downhill? Is it going to get caught with gravity in this position? It, it was so, f- we were all so focused on the project in front of us. Mm-hmm. And, and we all, allowed one another to get focused on the job in yeah. front of us yeah. and and so that was that was really cool and then and then you had, you had your closing follow-up I'll have my closing comment and then we'll we'll talk about Jason Barrett here and black button but the the first night we got down there uh, got down the road got to the trailhead and Moscow Jim dear friend had made Myself and and somebody we we don't really talk about on the podcast, but I've I've got another friend Bob. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't like being called Colfax Bob. He doesn't like being called Lawyer Bob, and so calling him Bobo is like a safe place. So, uh, so okay, I only know him as Lawyer Bob. So, right, yeah, right, okay. and so he hates that. And so Bobo, <laughs> he, he was happy with Bobo, but right. we both had birthdays while we were going to be out there. Yeah. his was on that day. Mine was a few days later. Moscow Jim had made us carrot cake, my my favorite cake. I was so happy. Sheer happenstance, just got lucky. Ah, stars aligned. It's my favorite cake too, by the way. Continue. Sensible choice. Sensible choice. And to accompany the carrot cake, Moscow Jim opened his bottle of Backwoods. Single cast nation, Backwoods heritage rye. That's what I'm sipping on right now in my my Jason glass that Travis Williams gave me. (laughs) Anyway, continue. So perfect. So perfect. perfect. 
And so 10 of us proceeded to almost clear out the carrot cake, but we most certainly cleared out the bottle of Backwoods. And it was phenomenal. Mm. Sitting on the... At this point, we're in Boise, uh, Boise National Forest, which is about... From where we were at the trailhead, we were about one mile from Frank Church Wilderness. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing was wild. <laughs> it's not like there was, you know, a strip mall round the corner. Yeah. Um, it really was all wild. But having backwoods in the backwoods, oh, it was <laughs> oh, so magical, so magical. And yeah, destroying an entire bottle of it. And, and Moscow Jim came over, saw the empty bottle, and he was like, oh. I didn't expect people to finish it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't expect people to finish it either, but damn if it wasn't delicious. Oh my gosh. I, I've i got to say this, you know, as you're explaining that and I'm sipping on this backwoods, carrot cake is the, uh, is the <laughs> perfect accompaniment to this. It's like the richness from both the cake mm -hmm. and the... Oh my gosh, that just sounds amazing. And That's a campfire... And the sun setting yeah. and the sky being clear That's with stars what life's about in it. Right there. there you go. <sighs> awesome. Absolutely awesome. So there we go. So that concludes my project, what I did on my summer holidays. Well, I'm glad you got to do that. I'm glad you signed up for another year. But you, you were correct in that you said, well, I'll give her this final comment, but then we need to get to Jason Barrett. We do need to get to Jason Barra and and Black Button Distill. I almost said Backwoods because I'm sipping on the Backwoods, but uh, Black Button Distilling Company. This was one of those interviews where going into it, having never spoken with the person before, we didn't necessarily know what we were getting ourselves into. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and you, I mean, the fact of the matter is I listen to plenty of interview podcasts and sometimes you have a great interviewee and sometimes you're like, ah, I thought that person would be more interesting. We, we just didn't know this guy from Adam. And this was not knowing him. We didn't know what to expect. And I remember getting off of that interview you and I got back onto FaceTime or a call or whatever it was and saying, that was one of the coolest conversations that we've had in a good yeah. long while. Yeah, I feel like we've made this point before on the podcast. When we started out for the first few seasons, it really was reaching out to people we knew and people we yeah. had experience with and people we'd perhaps visited in Scotland or visited in Kentucky or other parts of America. Mm -hmm. And so... It was rare for us to just meet somebody cold, yeah. and 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 I, th I would say in season six we've actually been meeting people cold yeah. more often than not, mm -hmm. and and we've really kind of walked into those interviews wondering what this is going to be like, and invariably coming out of all of them saying that was awesome, that was really excellent. Yeah. And I think what, what was striking for me with Jason today, he was a very good interview mm -hmm. where you ask him a question and he gives you the answer and then he answers the follow-up question you haven't yet asked. Yeah. 
And then he answers the follow-up to his own follow-up. And I, I, you know, I, by nature, I'm a very lazy person, which is why I like being unplugged as much as possible. But he was one of those people that you could just... Oh, you! I think you said this actually afterwards when we were debriefing, mm. which was it was a it was a little bit like our Sukinder Singh interview, mm. where we asked Sukinder a question, and then twenty five minutes later, you and I were kind of eyeballing each other, like you want to ask a question? Should I ask another yeah. question? Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like th- this one felt like that, where you just you opened the door and he walked through and he kept going, and and I love it because I get the sense that people who do that they're sharing and then they're sharing some more and then they're sharing some more mm. and they're telling you all the things that are important to them within their distillery or their their part of business or their corner of the industry and i i feel very comfortable in interviews like that yeah and yeah. and sometimes the difficult one is when you ask a question and you get a sentence or two in answer and then you ask a follow-up and you get a sentence or two in response. And I, I sometimes start to think, does this does this person want to be answering the questions that I'm asking? Well, you know, I I think in cases like that, I, how should I say this? You know, I think there are I think there are some instances where people are asked for an interview, you know, to give an interview. And they're expecting a question and answer session rather than having just a whiskey conversation that happens yes. to be focused around what they are doing. And yes. and I think he fully got that, you know, th- this we don't have a set of questions. We've actually done no homework at all. We're just having, you know, a conversation and recording it. And, and it's as simple as that. And I think some interviewees expect that the interviewers have prepared something when uh, that is simply what we'd never do that we don't prepare we just go in to talk but i tell you where the interesting wrinkle lay here is that we had had conversations extensive conversations with alex alex hunnell who's also with black button yep right and so we'd been tasting casks we'd been discussing selections we'd been discussing projects that they had going on and so i i feel like we knew things without ever meeting jason And, and our way of doing business really for the last decade has been to be talking to the person really who signs the checks. Yeah. And then that person will say, okay, for follow-up conversations, move in this direction or that direction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And here, you know, we had great conversations with Alex and we roped Elijah into those conversations. Mm -hmm. And now here we were meeting the person that signs the checks. Yeah. And it was kind of like, well, I know we've got a good rapport with Alex. What's (laughs) this going to be like? Yeah, yeah. And then it ended up being excellent. I could talk to him Creek Connection that was completely unexpected. unexpected. If I knew that at yeah. any point, it completely went out of my head. Says the man who's wearing a Catoctin Creek shirt right now. I thank yeah. you. I thank you. And actually, my phone is sitting right next to the Catoctin <laughs> Creek bottle of the four-year-old. So, yeah, I, 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 I did. Yeah, you don't remember hearing that before, do you? No, 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 I don't. And, and uh, no, not at all. And, and listen. I'm looking at the clock here, 
uh, we've got a bit of time under our belt. I want us to get to the conversation now because I think it's really interesting. I think the listeners are really going to enjoy it. There's some things I want to bring up afterwards. And there's a little surprise for our listeners afterwards as well that we want to share with them upon our return. So, uh, Jason, if you don't mind, let's uh, hand it over to Jason Barrett of Black Button Distilling. So, Jason Barrett from Black Button, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we are going to run into some uh, awkward moments when Joshua simply addresses the singular Jason, and you and I can look at one another to decide which one of us he was referring to. So if, if he starts talking about white walkers, uh, that'll be for me. So okay. Just, yeah. just so you know. So, <laughs> uh, so we were starting to talk a little bit before we hit the record button about you spending some time in, in Virginia, Arlington to be specific, and you talked about Scott and Becky, and our listeners know we love Scott and Becky with every fiber of our being. Yep. Catoctin Creek is, is incredibly special to us, and so we would love to kick off by knowing more about your connection to Scott and Becky and Catoctin Creek Distilling Company. Yeah, no, it is not an understatement that we would not be having this conversation and my life would be distinctly different without their kindness, support, and flexibility. Mm, so wow. I uh, I grew up in Rochester, New York, went to school for politics, moved to D.C., and worked on Capitol Hill. Mm. After about a year, I discovered huh. that politics in West Wing and politics in real life are very different. <laughs> and um, And so I had minored in accounting. And I ended up getting a job with an accounting firm where I would go around and help small businesses set up their payroll when they were hiring their first employees and get them compliant with all the various regulations they needed to take care of. I was also a very active home brewer. I was making probably close to 20 gallons a month, pushing towards the legal limit, actually. Wow. Pretty much every weekend I was brewing. And... um, and so I ended up getting to know a lot of the brewers and then Catoctin Creek is the first distillery in the D.C. area. And so when Scott and Becky needed payroll, they were kind enough to call me and enlist my services. And as I started to spend more time with them, I started to realize that what I loved about making beer could be translated into making whiskey. But there's only mm-hmm. so much free accounting advice you can give before you start to look a little silly so they would call me up with a question. I'd be like, mm, that's a tough one. I'm going to come out tomorrow. We'll sit down and discuss it. And then I'd get there, and it'd be like a two-sentence answer. And I was like, well, I've got four hours. Can I just hang out with you guys? What are you doing? So that they were very kind to let me do that. Um, and But I was working uh, most weekends, pouring beer as a sampling person in local supermarkets and things. And mm-hmm. so I had to give my schedule six weeks out for that job. Um, it was just a way to be involved in the beer community and it paid well. And if there was any beer left at the end of your session, you got to take it home. So, uh, so that was a neat thing. Win. Yeah. Yeah. That's a win. Um, yeah, you'd get a little (laughs) six pack of samples and you would really try hard to only use like three or four of them (laughs) because you wanted to take the other ones home. Um, so anyway, Scott posts that they're going to do this one day Saturday distilling class you know, so you think you want to be a distiller uh, in June of 
I guess that would have been 2011, if my memory ah, is correct. It okay. Was a long time ah, so ago. early doors. Early, early doors. doors. Okay. And so, so they were still in the lockup like, hey, next to the mechanic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, we're in the old space out by the highway, the cinder block walls, not the gorgeous one they have now. Right. Um, <laughs> so I email them. I'm like, hey, what Saturday in June is it? Because I'll take off of work so I can come to this. And he goes, we haven't really decided what Saturday works for you. How <laughs> <laughs> about wow. the 18th? Okay. June 18th. Um, so he sent out another email that now the class was going to be held on June 18th. So I took the day <laughs> off from my side job. I, uh, I went up there and actually um, I filled this notebook. Ah. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, you still have it I just still right have it there. sitting right here on my desk. Wow. Um, yeah. Because I refer to it a lot, actually. Um, it, at all five distilling programs I went to, all the notes are in there. And um, so, yeah, they uh, a- after spending a day with them of learning cuts and barreling and talking through the business and some of the challenges, I walked out of there really feeling like this was something I might want to do. And uh, it took about two years to write the business plan and another 18 wow. months to get licensed and... <laughs> On January 25th, 2014, Black Button launched in my hometown of Rochester, New York. Mazel. That's, that's absolutely phenomenal. I almost feel like the title put forth by Scott and Becky was to almost get people to rethink actually wanting to be a distiller. Yes. Were, so were there we, elements of that where oh, you were definitely. like, okay, there's... There's going to be some bumps here, but yep. I feel like I've got a, a lay of the land. So interestingly, we started running similar classes up in Rochester. By, by the time we started, they had kind of phased the classes out. Because mm-hmm. it is amazing what you will do when you have no money. <laughs> that once you have a little bit of money, you're like, I don't really want to spend my whole weekend 12 hours straight answering questions. I want to go home. Um, So they had kind of phased out of that and we picked up that mantle. And one of the things I would always start my class with, statistically about half of you will start a distillery and half of you won't. And for Mm -hmm. the half that don't, this is the best money you will ever spend because I am going to save you hundreds of thousands of dollars in years of your life. (laughs) For those of you that do continue on, best of luck. Uh Um, And then we would spend three days trying to really lay out what it really does take. I, it, it was interesting. Um, I, right as I was starting, I met a young man who apparently also wanted to open a distillery. And so we met and kind of compared notes. And what I was really confused about is we were meeting in May and he was annoyed that he would not be able to get his glass by July 4th because he wanted to open for July 4th weekend. And I said, but you don't, you don't have a lease, you don't have a space, you don't have any permits. Oh, yeah, that stuff's all easy. Well, dude, I've been working on those things for like a year and a half. I'm about to submit, and I'm hoping to be open by Christmas. Mm-hmm. One of us ended up opening a distillery, one of us didn't. Um, but it, it just shocked me that here he, you know, I was, in, I was envisioning this marathon, and mm-hmm. he was... Like, oh, if I can't get it done in the next six weeks, then this is just ridiculous. Dude, That's you can get amazing. a DSP and a New York distilling permit in six weeks. I want to know who you paid off. Like, <laughs> that's unheard that was, of. 
there's a lieutenant governor he might have sent some money to. So, yeah, that's yeah. not great. Not a surprise, yeah. but not great. <laughs> New York. Wow. Imagine if he was living in these modern times where you're taking six months, nine months, twelve months to get glass. Oh like, yeah. I wonder what he'd be doing now. That's yeah. I I think. Um, I mean, I think it's important when people get into this business that they do understand both the many benefits, but also the many challenges. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we were never trying to sway people one way or another. We were simply saying, our goal is to give you a realistic view in the day of the life, tell you the mistakes we've made so that you can make new ones, not repeat mm-hmm. ours, and try to add you know a, a element of reality. I mean, I had guys that would come in and say, listen, I'm going to invest a million dollars and five years from now, I'm going to be nationwide and I'm going to beat out Bacardi. And I was like, wow. Yeah. If only Bacardi had a million dollars to counter you. <laughs> oh, wait. That's their if paper clip budget. <laughs> and it doesn't if mean that you only. can't be successful. I just, yeah. I think it's going to take a little more than that. Um, I also once had a real, we did a number of consulting projects. And I once had a guy in New Jersey buy an old Chinese restaurant. And two thirds of it had a basement, one third did not. And um, and so he wanted, there wasn't really enough space for the distilling floor on the third that was not. So we ended up putting the fermenters in the basement and you worked them from the top, so that worked. But then he wanted to store product down there. And so I started showing him some of the freight elevators or, or pallet lifts you could use. And he said, no, 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 I'm just gonna put in a ramp. Uh... This ramp, you know, he, and he, we ended up seeing the, the drawings. The ramp covered a 12-foot tr- a fall in 15 feet. So that's almost a 45-degree angle. And then it came to a 4-foot by 4-foot platform and then a brick wall. Oh, my gosh. Now, there is a, there, we're in a very old building from 1892, and there is a small 6-inch ramp. It goes 6 inches up over 6 feet, so dramatically less. Mm-hmm. So we fill the tank with water because he was going to take pallets up and down this thing of fill bottles, empty glass, you know, moving things around. And so I said, listen, we're going to fill up this tank with water and I want you to control it as you go down the six inch incline. And we did it a couple of times and he got pretty tired. And all of a sudden, I'm like, OK, I just want to point out six inches over four feet, 12 feet over 15 feet. And he goes, so it's, it's not really going to work, is it? I'm like, I'd love to see you try. I just, you can build the distillery however way you'd like. I just want to add a little reality to your life that, that a 3,000 pound pallet going down any incline is a challenge, much less a 45 degree. <laughs> yeah, even even just a few uh, even just a few degrees down, <laughs> even four or five, you're you're pulling yes. at that point. Or if you're in front of it, yes. you're pushing for your life. Yes, we're very that much looking mental. forward to when we move to our new plant that uh, we will finally have a real dock, and there will mm. be no ramp. Uh huh. <laughs> and that's only six inches. That's right, and this one's only six inches. Feet. Although that's it incredible. has, and in the ten years, we've never had a major accident. But more than once, we've, especially in the ice and snow, um, it's gotten a little hairy. Wow. So. Uh, b- b- before we move on, and I, I definitely want to hear, there's so many questions to yeah. ask you. But, but I want to just nip back to a moment ago where you're talking about this 
brewing knowledge that you're building and you take that into the do you want to become a distiller portion from that amateur standing that you had producing 20 gallons of of beer a month at most to to then starting to implement that as a brewer for your own distillation how close were you to having it figured out it's a bit like the ramp question and how far away were you thinking I was a pretty good amateur I got a lot to go on the professional side what did that look like for you so I was very fortunate that I got to spend time with a number of distillers across the country before launching my own. Um, spent time at Michigan State and Cornell. Yeah. They were both at that time running three-day um, craft distillery education things. So those really had the science. Was and that with Ari at Michigan? Yep. yep. Yeah. Yep. Cool, 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 cool. Um, and Chris Bergelin back, back when he was around. And... Um, mm. And then Koval was running three-day programs in Chicago, and then Dry Fly Distilling would run, out in Spokane, Washington, would run week-long, just you, one student, and really put you to work. And so of all of that, I then had the confidence to get started, but as I taste what we made then and what we made now, it's light years apart. And I always like to Mm -hmm. say, we've never put out anything we weren't proud of. We stand behind every product we've made. Sure. But we've now also made, I mean, we've now brewed bourbon almost 5,000 times. If we weren't getting better, yeah. I would be concerned. <laughs> and there are still little tweaks. I mean, as you try to scale things up, as you change things, as you learn things. Um, and even when you just implement new equipment, um, w- we grind all of our grain in a hammer mill down at the farm. And we eventually wore out the old hammer mill that they'd probably had since like the 70s. And we bought a new one. And even though we tried to replicate as much as we could, we ended up getting a much more consistent um, grain uh, distribution of size particle with the new Mm -hmm. one. And our Mm -hmm. yields went up 7%, which was great. (laughs) We're now getting 7% more alcohol out of the same pound of grain. But that changes everything in the the plant. Um, And you've got to adjust for that. And even... I mean, year to year, the grain will have a different moisture content, protein content. I mean, we work Mm. hard to get as close as we can. But each time we switch from one season to the next, we have to make adjustments to compensate for that. Mm -hmm. So it's Mm -hmm. still, um, I I like to say, if we're not still improving, we're doing something wrong. Yeah. Yeah, The the first bottling team I I was ever a part of was at Dry Fly. Uh, I used to live in Pullman, Washington. Oh, okay. And so I headed through there and did the the one day thing and got the the free lunch. It was it was great, really fun time. Yep, and and like most distilleries, we started out with volunteer bottling, and the uh, the challenge, uh, we really only had eight spots the way our line was lined up, and oftentimes people would book as a couple or as two couples, and then sometimes they didn't show up because uh-huh. it was free. Uh huh. And it is actually really hard to run an eight-man bottling crew with only four people. Uh-huh. And although people are willing to give you three or four hours of free labor because it's kind of neat to go around, the joy wears off around hour 10. <laughs> <laughs> Which often left me and my and like one staff member uh, bottling till like two in the morning because we also didn't have any more tanks. So like we had to bottle it on Saturday because we were going to need that tank on Monday. Wow. So we, we now have a professional bottling crew. 
Uh, the balancing of it all. I, actually, I think the reason I was at Dryfly was it, it was an emergency call to arms, and I think a, a bachelor party or a bachelorette party had backed out. Yep. And I think they'd yep. lost eight of their 12 people uh, yep. within 24 hours, 48 hours of the yep. bottling going ahead. Yeah, it, it can be a challenge. But, I mean, again, every business and every distillery goes through these phases, and it is good to have walked that road. <laughs> uh, Joshua, I could I can keep going the questions. I've already got more in the in the chamber, but I will let you get a word in edgewise. Well, I, I did have some questions about your Singular. bourbon specifically. You, you get oh, one, just the one. I can only have just the, the one. one for the rest of this right. interview. So choose this question wisely. So I have a singular multifaceted question <laughs> uh, having to do Parts A through Z. <laughs> One A, uh, but but before we before we got on to that, um, I'm just I, I just wanted to clarify here, right? So you started off with Catoctin Creek or learning with Catoctin Creek, and then learned with, with other people. And so I'm curious, despite all you've learned with Scott and Becky, despite all you've learned through through you know your various and sundry other mentors. What things did you run into that you didn't expect to run into with Black Button, despite all of that learning that you had to overcome? I mean, there, there's probably two interesting things. One is that industrial equipment is not like an iPhone, where it works right out of the box. So there's every piece of equipment has a longer debug life than you want. And secondly, that minor oversights can cause major problems. So mm. in, interestingly enough, um, we okay. make whiskey unlike anyone else on the planet. And I would like to claim that it was through years of research and planning and a desire to make this happen. But it actually, truthfully, came from an oversight and our need to adapt. So huh. we, you know, I... I learned double pass distillation at dry fly distilling. You strip the grain into low wines and then you finish the low wines into high wines before putting it into a barrel. And I like the softer, sweeter, mellower bourbon that that pot still process delivers. So when I ordered my still from Artisan Still Design, there were some specifications that I didn't necessarily understand but I also wasn't that concerned about it because they knew what they were doing and I'd had whiskey <laughs> off of their stills. So sure. it must be fine. We accidentally ordered the equipment with the bubble cap efficiency set to um, single pass, taking straight mash, turning it into high wines in a single distillation. Mm. So a much tighter bubbling than one would expect. And so we're making the first few runs and we keep coming in at 165, 185. I mean, we're not getting under the 160 proof level. It's not bourbon. And I call and once we talk through what we're doing, they're like, oh, yeah, no, that'll never work. That equipment's not built for that. You can disassemble it, send it back to us. And for $30,000, you know, we can re-engineer and make oh you a new gosh. one. Oh. Guys, I didn't have... 30,000 pennies, much less $30,000. <laughs> um, I was living on a futon in my office. I'm totally maxed yeah. out on my credit cards. Like I, w I went all the way to the edge, then went past the edge oh, and luckily yeah. ne you know, never, uh, never uh, faltered. But, but we, this was not happening. 
But what's uh-huh. interesting is that our still, we had spec'd something sort of unique. Um, our still, rather than having separate pipes that go to the gin basket, the bourbon column, the whiskey column, it's all done with valves. Yeah. Because short, uh, it, this was not too long after the Tuttletown fire, and okay. we, yeah. we believed that a contributing factor was having these separate pipes and having to reseat them between each run. So mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. we worked with our still designer to eliminate that. It was all valves. So it turns out that if we take the heads cut in the column, very tight, you know, heads cut, and then shift the valve so we run straight from the pot to the product condenser, we can run about three hours of very heavy character corn distillate with tons mm-hmm. of flavor and tons of aroma and stay under that 160 proof. Mm. But as soon as we start to taste tails, we pop back into the column, we restack it, we continue to push that propanol back to the pot and let over about two hours of very light four-plate uh, bubble cap distilled whiskey. All mm-hmm. five of those hours of running the, the, the run stay under the 160 cap and they all divert into the same tank. So now you've got a mixture of about 60% just double pot, no plate whiskey, and 40% very light but still bourbon whiskey. And that is one of the reasons that I believe our whiskey tastes as soft and mature as it does in a younger age because of that sort of unique happenstance. And I I have... Equipment is often a, a surprising wow. thing. Um, <laughs> so, okay, here. so so I love this because it, it just, you know, it adds on to the, 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 the multiple facets of, of the question that I did have. But before we go on to facet number two, can you rewind back just a little bit when you were talking about bubble cap? Yeah. Yep. That's a term that, that I've not heard before. I, I don't think Jason has heard it before. Or if he uh, has, he hasn't shared it with me. I have, but... But go, go ahead and describe it for the listeners. Yeah, especially yeah. for our listeners yeah. as well, yeah. So when run, when run is running whiskey through plates, um, mm-hmm. you're looking for a bubbling action. So if it's a large yeah. distillery, typically the plates have small perforations in them where a layer of liquid rides along the top and it bubbles through that. But in sure. smaller stills where it would be harder to maintain the pressure necessary to float that they basically make um it's like a little teacup upside down and it has a little Mm -hmm. spout inside it and so it forms kind of an air gap where the the pressure from the steam comes up goes around and then bubbles out the side of these teacups um giving you a bubble plate rather than a uh a perforated plate so Um, yeah, there's really kind of three, you can have perforated plates, you can have packed plates, which is either ratchet rings or copper wire. Um, especially Mm -hmm. that's pretty common in vodka, especially sugarcane vodka. And then bubble caps are an older, but smaller, especially in the smaller size, um, just gives you more consistency in your run. So, Mm. and the heights Ah, that those bubble caps, that those little teacups are set has a lot, has a lot to do with the size of the bubble and therefore the efficiency of the still. So if you're trying to run really high proof, you want really little bubbles. If you were trying to run lower proof, you would want bigger bubbles. Excellent. 
Excellent. Got it. Thank yeah. you so much. That's yeah. uh, I, I told I told Jason uh, earlier on in this season that that I just felt overall my understanding of you know some of the intricacies of bourbon distilling needed a bit of improvement. And given the fact that you know yours is uh, a process unlike any other, I just wanted to make sure that I was clear. And I think it's good for the listener too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay. So now to facet number two. So now, you, now you're producing spirit in a way that no one else is producing spirit. But one of the things that I found interesting as we were getting samples uh, to taste for, for our own bottling that, that we're doing of your whiskeys that we're really excited about, mm-hmm. um, some of the samples that came through were with it really a different style yeast. And the, the whiskey that we ended up going with was an experimental bourbon yeast rather than your standard yeast. And so it seems as if you're using a yeast that is also different from what everybody else is doing. And so I'm curious to know your reasons for going with this other style of yeast. And then I have a third facet as well. So after that. there's always a lot of things to balance. And as a newer, smaller distillery, we needed to get high quality whiskey out in a reasonable amount of time without ever sacrificing quality. Because mm-hmm. quite honestly, if you put out bad whiskey, people don't give you another shot to try it and you'll never get them back. Mm-hmm. Oh, I had that once. It was no good. So mm-hmm. we weren't willing to compromise on quality, but we, we again, we, you know, and we, we only did one run with the five gallon barrels. We very quickly determined that was not our style. But we were using mm-hmm. 15 and 30 gallon barrels. The 15's running about two years, the 30's running three to four. And so we needed a yeast, Bill, both from my home brewing experience and then my business partner, Jeff Fairbrother, was a commercial brewer. We believe that the industry, the distilling industry, should pay more attention to the brewing and fermenting side of things. That a cleaner distillate going in uh, produces a cleaner, or a, a cleaner mash going in produces a cleaner distillate coming out. Um, I was just down at a distillery in Kentucky. Um, it was a wonderful day. Uh, the doors are all open. There's flies everywhere. And I watched at least three go across one of the open top fermenters, die, and just pile dive right into the mash. <laughs> That's not, I mean, again, it's a 6,000 gallon tank. It's yeah. probably not the end of the world. You're certainly not drinking it directly. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that the essence de fly. <laughs> adds to the quality of the whiskey. Oh, think so, of those protein chains, though. There you go. Just think of those it might. It might chains. add a lot of complexity that I am uh, <laughs> that I'm underestimating. So we, we have temperature controlled fermentation. So we the fermenters are the same whether it's January or July, mm. and then we use a very hardy, um, but also very, fairly clean uh, distilling yeast. And so the the project that the barrels that you're talking about ended up coming from. When it's interesting when you're really small, the things you can do very quickly. And as you get bigger and more people are involved, the more complex things get. So yeah. I, you know, I'm really very fond of our mash bill. I really do feel that it's the right fit for us. So I was trying mm-hmm. to figure out how I could have variations to show people how one part of the process would be different without having to totally rewrite the book. 
And so we made several different distillations with these other yeasts. And originally my idea was we'd make like little three pack or five pack of 375s. And, you know, this would be yeast one and this would be yeast two. And it would be this mm. whole little <laughs> experimental explanation kit you could take home. And by the time they came of age four years later and we kind of took this idea out to our retailers and, you know, hey, you know, we want to do this multi-pack of little bottles. It'll end up being, you know, 120 bucks. They're all basically like, no. <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah. That way too complex. And what happens if somebody likes number three and then they come back and they want to buy a big bottle of number three? You're going to have that, right? Well, no, yeah. it was an experiment. We made like 10. Dude, you're just going to create all kinds of confusion. I, I won't carry that in my store. Yeah. And after you hear that, like, Five times in a row, <laughs> you start to realize that maybe your wonderful, fun idea that is interesting to taste is maybe kind of confusing to the average consumer. I would probably argue that anyone listening to this podcast probably isn't your average bourbon consumer. Yeah. They are into it. That's right. how they're here. Yeah. Yep. But how do you take, you know, Joe Schmo, I drink three bottles a year. I don't know anything about it. If you cause a lot of confusion, you can create problems for the liquor stores. So... Luckily, we discovered all that before we bottled it. Um, but then these barrels were just kind of hanging out. And we've done some of them as you know, single barrels or for other fun projects. Uh, but then when we connected with you guys, it seemed like a great way to show off this neat thing we did that doesn't really align that well with our route to market. Whereas, again, sure. the folks that are getting into the whiskey you're doing are looking for that unique experience and now get to try something that literally you can't get anywhere else like if you come to my distillery and ask for it i'm just gonna like look at you it, it's yeah. so interesting what you said a second ago and i know josh has got another facet to his multi um but keep talking i may add more jason <laughs> but that, that that moment when you hear from the retailer well if they like the 375 can they buy the full bottle and it's so interesting and i think you hit the nail on the head for for listeners of this podcast for members of the nation it is about experimentation. It is about covering as much ground as possible. It's not having the the repeated result. And so yeah. it's it, and so we hear from the nation, we hear from listeners of this podcast that they would love to see more experimentation from producers. But as you've just so beautifully articulated, producers don't necessarily have a way to bring that experimentation to market. So it's interesting because in some ways I, I see that changing rapidly with DTC. And mm -hmm. I, have, I was going to ask you about mm. that. I have, so Black Button has gotten a little larger than I originally intended. Um, if you had told me 10 years ago I'd have 83 <laughs> staff members in four states, I would, I would have ah. just been beyond myself. Ooh, from so, a futon to 83 staff members. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. So... Yeah. It comes up regularly. Uh, you know, everybody asks. <laughs> so at, at some point, if I retire, because I can't really mm, see myself yeah. ever retiring, I want to build a distillery that one man can make one barrel in a day. And then my plan would be that every month I'd have a different mash bill. And then there'd be some combination. It would all be bourbon, but it would run high wheat, high rye, four grain, five grain, you know, stuff was spelt in it. Um, and that we would just do all these experimentation, which would create this weird database of whiskey. Um, again, yeah. one barrel per day. 
And then you would basically just have to do it all on DTC. You'd work with no distributors, no retailers. You would simply explain to folk, you know, and you'd let some barrels age a little. You'd let some barrels age a lot. It would just be this kind of neurotic, crazy, you know, <laughs> oh, if, if you like our high rye bourbon, come back next August, we'll have it again. <laughs> and I would love that. But I don't actually know if that's a sustainable business. <laughs> like, I think I could make a living doing it as a one-man thing. But I don't know that you could turn that kind of craziness yeah. into yeah. a yeah. I can pay my bills. And so that's my retirement gig. So I love that's it. my goal. Uh, it, it's funny it, you talk like that. It, similarly, though, though, this may be slightly tenuous. I, I, I remember talking with... Bruce Russell, last time Jason and I were at Wild Turkey, and he, he basically said if if him and Eddie ran Wild Turkey the way that they wanted to do it, they'd end up losing all of the employees, because <laughs> right, they want they want to release everything cast strength, they want to do all these fun experiments and, and this, that, and the other thing. Meanwhile, they need to be chugging out Wild Turkey 101, Wild Turkey 81, you know, to keep to keep people employed and in the lights on, like it's there, there are differences between pipe dreams and reality and keeping 83 people employed. And <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's, kids, it's right? really hard. I mean, when we come out with a new label or a new expression, you've got to get 14 distributors on board. You've got to get their staffs educated. You've got to come mm -hmm. out with new marketing materials. You've got, you know, folks asking why this instead of that, I mean, and luckily in our tasting room, it's a little more straightforward. And in Western New York, we self-distribute. So it's just our staff. But even that, yeah, I mean, we have double barrel bourbon. We have single barrel bourbon. We have single barrel, double barrel bourbon. Uh, at some point, it gets a little ridiculous. And, uh, and I mean, I love double barrel bourbon. Two fresh oak, white oak casts. And we, have, we do it but we now only do it as single barrels because we only make like three or four of them a year because having mm -hmm. single barrel, double barrel, and double barrel, single barrel was just way too much. So now it's cast strength. It's always a single barrel. If it's not good <laughs> enough to be a single barrel, it won't come out like that because I just can't oh, have okay. a double barrel blend. I, I've got too many options. And <laughs> at that point, it's then hard for people to make decisions. You know, if somebody says mm -hmm. I... And, mm -hmm. and you actually see some of the brand, bigger brands um, split off. They do their experimentation by having them be different names. So, I mean, you have Buffalo mm -hmm. Trace. You have Blanton's, which is their single barrel. You have Colonel, you know, their Colonel Taylor, which is their higher proof stuff. Like each one is a different thing, but they just call it a mm -hmm. totally different brand, mm -hmm. even though it all starts with two mash bills. Yeah. We don't have yep. the marketing dollars to pull that off. So <laughs> <laughs> not yet anyway. It's it's interesting. Your your double barrel, single barrel makes me think of when Balveni first started putting out their new line of what they were calling single barrel. Mm -hmm. And it was a single type of maturation barrel. It wasn't a single cask offering. Uh -huh. And I, I remember my brain just 
you know, making it against a wall. Um, I mean, and then the other thing you were saying is, is also somebody who came to it from brewing. But when you were saying about your kind of retirement idea, you made me think of some conversations we've had with Trent Tilton at San Diego Distillery. And he mm. was greatly influenced by the world of beer where you do have those seasonals. And yes. you do go through it experimenting and being experimental. And then he was putting out the 375 mil bottles, but then working out what sizing that up might look like yep. and how he could pull that off. So you, and there you've are, got, my, got my brain working here. And there are some interesting mm. ones. I mean, some very good friends of mine run Barrel, 2Rs, 2Ls. And every one of their oh, yeah. batches is different. So if you like batch mm -hmm. six, you better get a case because batch seven is intentionally going to be entirely different. Mm -hmm. And that allows for an interesting level of experimentation, partly because it, it's almost like core to the brand. They end up needing to work with very high-end distributors and retailers to get that. And mm -hmm. I think they're going after a portion of the market that is more sophisticated, whereas our, we are more of a generalist. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's just different. I mean, I, I love seeing that stuff. I love seeing barrel finish stuff. Um, again, if I had my way, we'd have 40 different barrel finishes. <laughs> um, my staff has luckily been able to set some guard guidelines. And yeah, we are currently trying to go through a little bit of skew rationalization so we can then mm -hmm. come out with some more exciting things down the road. So Okay. Okay. Gosh. Skew rationalization is today's $10 term. That's, those I mean, are serious it's, words. It's a polite way of taking some of the brands out behind the barn. and <laughs> <laughs> It's the Ben and Jerry's flavor graveyard of Black Button. Yep. yep. Oh, I, I was getting visions of, of mice and men right before you <laughs> took them out. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so, so, so continue faceting your multi, Joshua. Well... Uh, so you, you talked about the different size barrels that you're using and you capped it off at 30 and I had heard, and you could please correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, I had heard that some changes are being made within the TTB that, that talk about the size of casks being used to produce something that is then called bourbon. So do you know about that? And can yep. you expand on it? Yeah. So, so i I probably didn't explain this very well. Uh, we have actually been filling 53-gallon barrels since the very first year. We just have never released any of them yet. And at the beginning, it was, you know, we'd maybe make four 53-gallon barrels, and then the next year it was eight. At this mm -hmm. point, we actually exclusively fill 53-gallon barrels. Ah, we just, okay. it was about building a ladder so we could get to where we needed to go. Mm -hmm. um, so we... That's actually all we use at this point. We just haven't grown into that being what we're bottling yet. Um, so there, there was a proposal uh, to rewrite many of the TTB rules. One of those proposals was to define a barrel as a wooden container of approximately 50 gallons. Now, there was an interesting discussion of whether 53 is even approximately 50 gallons. <laughs> um, as I understand it, there was a significant negative reaction from the industry. The TTB oh, okay. had a process where you could comment on that. And as I understand, it was something like 97% of the responses on that section were don't do this. The mm -hmm. TTB ultimately will make their decision. Um, and those rules will be out probably this fall. I would certainly hope 
that a 97 to 3 percent um, argument um, would not allow it. I personally would actually be in favor of um, of adding, and we do this on our labels already, that if it was something other than a 53-gallon barrel, that you should specify the size. Because I do think there are, I think it is dangerous as an industry when one doesn't define things terribly well. So I actually mm-hmm. think this is one of the struggles that rum has. Rum can be anything from a 189-proof co- column-distilled, almost vodka, never aged, to a 40-year-old Jamaican pot-stilled, funky whatever. And if you're really into it, you can draw those differences. Mm-hmm. But when, mm-hmm. but the average consumer, oh, it, all, all rum is too sweet. I, I don't like pineapple flavor. I don't like rum. Mm-hmm. I've had rums that were aged in ex-bourbon barrels that that rival some of the best bourbons I've ever had in complexity and depth, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is totally different than pineapple-infused, <laughs> you know, <laughs> basically vodka. And so I worry there's – a, there's a guy up here, small producer, and he has five-minute bourbon. And so he puts it in mm-hmm. a barrel for mm-hmm. five minutes. It's mm-hmm. white dog. And, and, he can u- and he legally can use the word bourbon. And he thinks that gives it some cachet. Most consumers I have talked to, they didn't necessarily understand that it being clear meant it wasn't going to taste what they expected. And I think yeah. when you cause that confusion, you, you, it's not good for the consumer. It's not good for your brand. But, mm-hmm. and, and again, I, I mean, anytime you put more restrictions on, you do stifle innovation, mm-hmm. but you also do protect certain things. I I have the <clears throat> most respect in the world for the gentleman doing the ultra-aging stuff that are trying to use science to change, you know, to do mm-hmm. in a day what nature does in a year. I have yet to taste one that I feel would complement what we do, so we do it the old-fashioned way. Mm-hmm. It, you know, if somebody can break that mold, it will be like the change of the horse and buggy to the automobile. I mean, then the interesting mm-hmm. question will just be, again, how do you define these things? Because all yeah. of a sudden, if you could have Jack Daniels that was really in a in a barrel and Jack Daniels that was ultra-aged in two hours, I mean, I figure if if it does happen, you'll see it first, you'll see it first from one or two small guys, but then somebody big. I mean, imagine what the change would be for Jack Daniels if instead of aging for two to six years, they could turn out that whiskey in a matter of hours. Oh, my gosh. It would yeah. completely change their capital allocations, their campus where they do it. If that, if that could taste as good or better, they would invest pretty much any amount of money to make it happen. Because also the struggle in whiskey, I mean, we're currently making product for 2030. I mean, my, my daughter will be in school <laughs> and yep. what will the world be like? Will people, yeah. you know, what will people yeah. be drinking at that point? What prices will they pay? Yeah. Can you even get the whiskey through the gas mask? That's the difficult part. Yep. Will there be any, <laughs> yeah. Will there be any restaurants? I mean, we, we used yeah. to do a ton of in-store liquor store today, 1100 in 2019. Wow. We pulled off 127 in 2020, zero mm-hmm. in 2021, 
And we are just now starting to see the industry come back to those. And that was one of our main marketing ways, you know, that getting yeah. people to try locally made product so they would then hopefully buy a bottle was huge for us. We spent most of our marketing dollars there and that yeah. just disappeared. And I can't tell you whether we'll be doing it this Christmas, which is a huge season for us, or whether we'll be mm -hmm. back to restrictions that don't allow that. Yep. So yep. it's a lot of faith to make whiskey <laughs> for eight years from now yeah. when, uh, when you don't know what the world holds. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. Even on the grain side of things, right? Uh, right? What's the growth of grain going to look like? What's climate change going to mean to, to grain production? Yeah. Uh, and, and back to what you were talking about with yields earlier as well. And in thinking about what you're saying about the the rapid aging and the, the old-fashioned aging, I, I do take some solace in the fact that within food, we have fast food and then we have the slow food movement. Yeah. And, mm. and, I, and I think regardless of where things go with innovation, I think we will still see the people who say, you know, I just like whiskey aged in oak over a series of years. I just like that more. Yes. And, you know, and then the reasons that go along with that. Well, and I think anytime a market, I think you hit the nail right on the head, when a market starts to split into those various things. I mean, McDonald's has its place. I, I just right. drove 14 hours to the bottom of Kentucky, and I really didn't want to stop and have a full meal. At the same time, obviously, when I had more than five minutes, I was much interest, more interested in higher quality. And we're somewhat facing that discussion ourselves. Um, we... We're in the process of building a new facility. It will dramatically mm -hmm. increase our capacity. And there is a scale where our double pot distillation on offset columns doesn't really work anymore. You, you can't get too big. And if you have too many stills lined up, they won't be consistent. And wow. we're getting some significant input from one of our equipment suppliers. You should just buy a column still. Just, just mm -hmm. get a column still. It's no big deal. Uh, we have computer controls. The computer can make your whiskey. Uh, no. Uh. <laughs> um, <laughs> we may move the stripping to a continuous column where we do that initial distillation because we're just separating all the alcohol out. But that final step in the pot stills is so critical that quite honestly, if we mm. went away from that, I think we'd have it'd have to be an entirely different brand because mm. it would taste so fundamentally different. You know, our happy accident that we got talking about earlier. <laughs> That is key to, to who we are and what our whiskey is. And that does mean that there is a theoretical you know, cap on how big we can get. And that's okay. You know, my, my business partner and I, we have decided that that works for us. And I don't mm. fault people for who, who have different taste buds, have different preferences, um, or if the economics, I mean, again, the guy's really giving me the hard sell of like, you know, but it's 35% more in utilities and 18% more in labor and Yo, 7% less efficient. I'm like, I don't care. Yeah. He's just like, I was like, yeah. I don't care. This is how I make whiskey. I've made it this way for the last 10 years. I'm going to make it this way for the next 10 years. Mm. I really only want to buy the stripping still, not the full still. Are you willing to sell that to me or do I need to talk to someone else? Uh-huh. <laughs> so, and, and they were. They did, quoted it. So Okay. He, he did say yes to the the sale in front of them and, and not have you yes. walk away to a competitor. 
And I, and I, I appreciate that he was trying to give me his best advice. That doesn't necessarily mean that it was the right fit for me. Not every company follows the same path. Not every child follows the same path. So mm-hmm. this is just works. what works for us. Is there a part of you that as you see this, this new build, this slight change in how you produce your product, is there a little bit of nervousness with you? Where you say, like you said a second ago, I've done this for a decade. Here's going to be a twist. Or is it a natural evolution? And, and you're quite comfortable in that natural evolution. I think it's a inevitability that one ex- embraces as part of the process. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been through it before. You know, we, we had originally a 500-gallon mash tun. Now we have a 1,500-gallon mash tun. The new facility, mm-hmm. the mash tun will probably be twice as large. Therefore, the fermenters will be twice as large. You know, there, are, there are key principles we want to keep the same, but also things that again, just have to change. When, when we started, all the grain was in bags. And mm-hmm. now the major grains, corn and wheat, are in silos and augered. And at the new facility, everything will be in silos and augered. Even mm-hmm. that small of a change, which is going to save my guys a ton of labor and their backs because all these 55-pound bags just going up a, a steel ladder like twice a day is nuts. Yep. That will inevitably make some change that is hopefully manageable has i mean we have to figure out a way because otherwise yeah we would be out of business um so i think you embrace that natural evolution and as long as you stick to those key principles uh, we have key principles that we think really reflect in the quality of the whiskey the rest of the stuff all just has to be managed because there's already again different changes the guys that are making it are learning every year and getting a little better um we're going to have more precise steam valves at the new facility because right now we just have gate valves that have a little, you know, uh, you can be at 5%, you can be at 15%, but there's not really a difference. It's like it's like a shower at the hotel. It's either piping hot or really cold. Um, and we now know where to get needle valves where we'll be able to literally crank this wheel and, okay, it's 14%, 15%, 16%. Mm. That additional control should actually make it so we can make better whiskey, but it's still a change. Um, And you're changing 15, 20 things all at the same time. So you hope those all kind of counteract each other as you get to the other end. But I guess um, I, I was already planning on making sure that the last barrel we fill at this facility gets a, like a plaque or something on it um, to sort of, be the dividing line between what was made on railroad street (laughs) and what will be made only a mile away. I mean, we're not moving very far, but it's still just a new world. I mean, how the air currents move through the building will have an impact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a pretty cool process to try to wrangle, but at some point like a toddler, you start to give up the idea that you're really in control of the process. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can see the effect having an 18-month-old is having on you. Like the, These analogies are crystal clear. <laughs> it's crystal. <laughs> yeah, if you try to set some rules, some guidelines, and ultimately just try to keep them from killing themselves. And, you know, and at the end, you have whiskey. Or an 18-month-old. But at least your casks know the difference between the left and right shoe, right? <laughs> I, I, I hope that that is a thing. 
I mean, even that is another interesting question. I mean, the barrel warehouses have such an impact on how the casks age that mm-hmm. honestly, yeah. you know, putting them near the door versus near the back versus up high versus down low has mm-hmm. a huge impact on it, even if we were to continue making it all the same as the warehouse gets fuller, things are changing. Yeah. 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 And, and, and this was facet number four to my question before is when, when consumers think of bourbon, typically they're thinking Kentucky bourbon or Indiana bourbon, right? And, and those climates have a very specific effect on barrels. And, and so with your climate, my guess is you you never you always wanted your bourbon to be your bourbon and never emulate someone else's style of bourbon. And so the the final question that I had for you, and I'm so glad we we got through all the facets of this question here. It was, it's been a beautiful is, question, Joshua. I'll be honest, hugely thank, impressed. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, thank you. Is for you as bringing consumers on, have you found that to be a challenge that? Yes, we know Kentucky's doing X, we're doing Y, and this is why it's valuable, right? So can you talk a little bit about that, people coming to your brand from a preconceived notion of what bourbon should be? Yeah, I mean, I think it is, um, I think it is changing rapidly. So you go back yeah. 10 years ago, and there weren't very many distilleries around, craft beer was still newer than it is today, and... You know, consumers really did have a preconceived notion that, you know, Jim Beam was bourbon. And mm. now I, I feel like each year it's getting, we're getting more questions. We're getting, you know, why do you do it this way? What's different about yours? And there's so much enormity to that, that trying to get them to sit still long enough to hear the full story, I think, is the current challenge. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> The, there's no doubt that the climate that the barrels are aged in, where I mean, we go twenty some odd days below zero. That you know, yeah. negative ten is a whole different level of cold. If you've never experienced <laughs> it, I don't recommend it. <laughs> but it starts all the way back at the farm. I mean, we we grow our grains in the Genesee Valley, which is a glacial valley where the topsoil is four hundred feet thick. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. Wow. I mean, a forty-story building. Gosh. Thick. Wow. We have an unending amount of topsoil. We have a very unique ecosystem being right in between Lake Erie and Lake Ontario, where we get lots and lots of snow. We usually have a pretty wet spring, but a pretty dry late summer. And then Mm -hmm. again, usually a pretty wet fall. And so we get big, plump grains as long as we get them out of the fields before the fall rains. Yeah, because otherwise we can screw up the whole year's thing right there. Then you bring them to the plant. Mm-hmm. We've got, you know, we've got temperature controlled fermentation. We've got the funny pot still thing we do at the end. Now you're putting them into barrels that have been toasted and charred because that's one of our requirements. Mm-hmm. And then putting them in a metal pole barn that just bakes in the summer. We get a hundred and ten mm-hmm. degree temperature mm-hmm. swing over the course of the year, sometimes a 30 degree temperature swing in a day. Mm-hmm. The other interesting thing, our pole barn is right next to a dolomite quarry. And so uh, it shakes when they do the blasting every morning. <laughs> now, oh, wow. I don't know if that changes the whiskey all that much, <laughs> but it's really weird when you're standing in the, when you're standing in it and the whole building yeah. 
rattles wow. for a minute because they just set <laughs> off dynamite down in the quarry. So yeah. all of those changes, and, and then even the way that we blend at the end, um, we don't just take 20 barrels that are the oldest and throw them in. We're tasting mm. every barrel pretty much every three months and saying, is this ready? Is it not? Does it need more time? Does it need to be moved in the warehouse? What do we need to do with it? And as we select the casts that we think are done, because each barrel really does age differently, we mm -hmm. then pull those into four pre-tanks, sweet, spice, oak, and then our binder tank. Binder being that it has a little bit of everything, but no individual one of those other three that stands out. We're then okay. constantly adding barrels to those tanks, constantly proofing them down. And when we go to make a blend, we pull from those four pre-tanks to make our signature flavor. So as you add up all of those differences, it really is very, very different than Kentucky whiskey. And mm -hmm. now it just depends on what's the part that means the most to you. Because mm. I've got people, I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day and they, um, they said, listen, I like your bourbon, but quite honestly, I'm a Blanton's man. That's what I drink <laughs> day in and day out. And you just, you're, you're close kid, but you're not there. <laughs> And I was like, well, that's a like eight to 12 year old bottle that can go anywhere from 60 to $300, depending on where you buy it. So the fact that we're even in the same chapter as that is pretty good. Um, you know, I think the guy was really surprised because I think he was sort of meaning it as a put down. And I was kind of like, hey, yeah, sure. if you think we're at that level, this is awesome. Um, there you, go. <laughs> you know, good friends of mine run Garrison Brothers and they make whiskey mm -hmm. in a really unique way. And I love Garrison Brothers whiskey when I'm angry. I'll be honest. <laughs> I don't drink it a lot if I've had a good day. But if I've had a bad day, I love how Garrison, like that big baking spice, that thick yeah. note of wood on there. Um, if I if I bring that bottle out of the bar, my wife's like, oh, tough day, huh? <laughs> and yet it works so well. And yet, and again, there's there's different whiskeys that I drink in the summer than the winter. And I think we're starting to see people get more nuanced and break down into what you were just talking about, Jason, where you're going to have fast food. You're going to have people getting $20 plastic handles. Um, you're going to have people in that middle category. And then you're going to have people trending towards the high end. And as long as the industry has offerings for everybody, it's a wonderful thing. So you, you've set me up so beautifully. I, we greatly appreciate your time today, Jason. We got yeah. through all, you know, thousand facets of Joshua's question, which I loved. I've got one more question for you, and then we'll let you go back because you're a busy chap. We're busy chaps. But looking at the future... And, and earlier on, you talked about DTC, direct consumer. You also talked about the gentleman who was getting the glass in six weeks and he was going national in three months. What do you think the landscape looks like for distillers like yourself over the next five to 10 years? What, what's going to be necessary uh, for, for survival, for success? And what do you think might need to be overcome? I mean, I think there is, is an excellent question. I think it's getting harder. Mm. You know, 10 years ago, there were maybe a couple hundred people across the country 
So when you went to a distributor and said, hey, I'm using local corn and I'm using my grandpappy's recipe and mm. I've got a cool story, that was kind of unique. To be honest, if, you're, if that's the whole story, they get that pitch 10 times a day. Mm-hmm. And I also think we're going to see a regionalization of whiskey. Does California mm-hmm. need New York whiskey? I don't know. There's really great whiskey made in California. I'm mm-hmm. sure you know, not all 200 New York distilleries need to be in California. Maybe a couple of them do. I, so I think it's getting harder. I think there is going to be a bit of a shakeout. I, I do think both craft beer and craft spirits maybe has given a little bit of a unfortunate impression that, it, that it's all just about heart, you know, <laughs> that if you want it bad enough, you'll be the next New mm-hmm. Belgium. Mm-hmm. It also <laughs> requires capital and acumen and quality. And I yeah. do think there are a few too many that are, I mean, I started on a shoestring. I, you know, we, we barely made it a couple times and I applaud everyone that's crazy enough to, to take that same leap of faith. But I think it is getting harder because there are more craft guys in front of you. I mean, you have... Catoctin Creek and Koval Mm -hmm. and Dry Fly, amongst Mm -hmm. many others that have relationships, that have spots on the shelf and are craft and different. You know, when they were coming up, being craft and different was enough. Now, what is enough? Because Mm -hmm. they've heard that one before. So I think (laughs) I think the quality has to go up. I think the age of the distillate of craft stuff has to be higher than it Mm was. I mean, I, I have all the respect in the world for the guys at Tuttletown. They changed the laws that helped make my farm distillery possible. Yep. I think it'd be very hard today to take 90-day-old bourbon at $60 or three seventy-five and make a nationwide <laughs> company out of it. Mm-hmm. In some ways, yeah. it was a they had perfect timing. You know, mm-hmm. and timing I think people discount how important timing can be. New York Times kept interviewing this restaurant owner in Upper West Side Manhattan who closed on their little Asian restaurant like three weeks before the city shut down. Those folks didn't do anything wrong. They didn't have bad planning. They didn't have, you know, they bought a successful existing business and then they got beat over the head with COVID. Yeah. And luckily they seem to have made it through by pivoting to like an all takeout setup. And um, it's been interesting watching the New York Times part on that. But mm-hmm. again, timing is such an important factor and so I'm always confused when people tell me I'm going to be the next Dogfish Head, I'm going to be the next New Belgium, I'm going to be the next Tuttletown, or I'm going to be the next Tito's is really the one that blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> if you're just following instead of leading, you're never going to catch up with those guys. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they aren't necessarily going to fall out of favor. I mean, they have their own changes and challenges, but... I think people have to innovate. I think they have to do something new. I think they have to give real thought as to how they're going to overcome those barriers. And and there's new opportunities that weren't traditionally available. I mean, Bardstown Bourbon Company's co-production model, where you can get, without buying a still, you mm-hmm. can get world-class distillers, world-class equipment, and make age distillate that they'll store for you was not available 10 years ago. And it mm-hmm. wouldn't work yeah. for us there in Kentucky, not here in New York. But 
I love when they bring stuff like that. I also I love it even more when people are really transparent about it. So the last piece, mm-hmm. I guess my my suggestion, transparency is really a key thing. And I think consumers are starting to get hip to the idea that, wait a minute, your three-year-old distillery has eight-year-old whiskey and you're in Pennsylvania, but it says it's distilled in Indiana. What's all that about? Mm-hmm. And when they find out, they're not usually that happy. So I, I think we have, I think we're going to move to a more transparent world in that. And then the last piece I, that I think will be interesting is this, uh, the introduction of RTDs, the ready to drink stuff. Mm. Right now, mm. Americans really are focused on the 12 ounce can. You don't see a ton of people doing the eight ounce can. Most whiskey cocktails are not really built to drink 12 ounces of them at a time. You know, 12 <laughs> ounces of a real Manhattan or a real old fashioned is like a third of a bottle of whiskey. So <laughs> as more can sizes become available, as somebody goes and make, I mean, at some point, somebody's going to make a really good old fashioned that I can throw in a cooler and drink on a boat and taste just like I made at home. I haven't found it yet. I'm probably not the guy to do it, but somebody's going to pull that off at some point. And those are going to be interesting game changers. And so I think folks really have to try to see what hasn't been done rather than trying to emulate what has been done. That's, I guess, Mm -hmm. my take on it. Just to flesh out a little bit of what you said about regionality, do you think someone could open up and operate a distillery that was built on the back of in-person sales and direct-to-consumer sales within their home state? Could somebody pull that off? Definitely. I mean, I I don't know that you're going to have... 300 employees, I, but mm-hmm. I, I know distilleries that have been going concerns for six, seven years where the tasting room and honestly, the, uh, they do a couple farmers markets are the whole story. And, mm-hmm. and those are the ones where DTC is even more important. I mean, I don't think that many people are going to pay extra to have Jack Daniels packed into a box and shipped to their house. Yeah. But yeah. if you had a really interesting liqueur at some bar on, you know, at your friend's bachelor party and you want to bring that to your home state and it's not sold there, you might be willing to pay that premium. So Mm -hmm. I I think the industry has got to wrestle with whether it's direct from the distillers or if it does move through the three-tier channel. But Mm -hmm. wine has been being shipped all around the world, all around the country for years without a detriment to the local liquor stores and without consumer, I mean, Consumers still go and buy wine mostly at liquor. It's after 20 years, direct to consumer wine is 3% of the market. There you go. I mean, so in our wildest dreams, in 2042, it might be 5% (laughs) of the market. But the interesting question would it allow somebody that was crazy and wanted to do that retirement thing that I talked about? Or somebody that's making something truly odd. I mean, using einkorn or other grains that Mm -hmm. are not commercially available and therefore the production is super small. Mm -hmm. And they will only end up speaking to the niche leading edge of the industry. I mean, I will pay an extra $50 to have whiskey sent to me that I want. Mm -hmm. I will not do that with wine because I don't (laughs) like wine. Um, 
So I still buy all my wine. I mean, actually, I've, I've got to be one of the more unique wine customers. I walk into the liquor store. I know the wine my wife likes. I ask them for a case. They look at me because it's pretty cheap wine. And I'm wearing the black button thing. And they bring me out a case. And then I don't come back for like eight or nine months because she drinks like a bottle a month. I'm not going to pay to have that delivered to my house because yes. the shipping will be yeah. more than the wine. Yes. But yep. I will pay more than the bottle to have a bottle of whiskey that I really want to try. You know, a special release over in Scotland. Mm-hmm. I, you know, will have that stuff sent because I'm a consumer that cares enough. And there will and there will be new businesses and new niche things. And folk I mean, there's there's guys that are starting to do like designer whiskey, where literally you fill mm-hmm. out a form online and they blend it custom for you oh, based yeah. on your answers yep. and ship it to you. Yep. Unless we're gonna start putting barrels behind the bar uh, at a local liquor store and and have them mixing it, you're only gonna get that experience through the internet. So yeah. mm-hmm. there will be changes. I don't I don't see it changing the whiskey world, but I see it making the world for certain distilleries. So this has been absolutely fascinating. Really yeah. appreciate your time and really appreciate your transparency. The, Happy to the do it. quality of your answers has been really wonderful. So thanks ever so much, Jason. Agreed. Yeah, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sincere thanks to Jason for really spending so much time with us, answering our questions so thoroughly and really just being fascinating. And and someone who's clearly thought long and hard about what he's doing and has also taken advice on board to get where he is Mm, and to build and expand the way he has. I'll I'll throw this in for our, our own dear listeners here, but... As we were getting to the end of that conversation, that interview, I was very conscious of the amount of time we'd taken mm-hmm, with Jason. Mm-hmm, yeah. And and we were kind of aware of, hey, you've got things to do, we've got things to do, let's let <laughs> let's get back to our respective tasks here. And with the recording stopped, we spoke to Jason for another half hour <laughs> and asked him additional questions that he spent time answering it was it was remarkable to such a degree that here we are in july and you and i are going to be at the distillery later this month to continue some of the conversations that we've been having i'm really excited to visit it's funny you know here in connecticut there really isn't much black button distribution uh, at least as far as I can tell. However, I've, I've spoken with a few of my local whiskey guys. Uh, and I, I should specify my local bourbon guys, right? I, I've got whiskey guys and I've got bourbon guys. Mm. And then I've got whiskey guys who are, you know, malt and bourbon guys. Anyway, talking to my bourbon guys, they don't know much about Black Button, but apparently word has gotten around so much about Black Button's cream liqueur, their their cream bourbon mm-hmm. liqueur mm-hmm. that somehow some way they've they've gotten access to it and they're like i can't wait to try the bourbon because this bourbon cream is amazing so i know i've, I've got a sample of it somewhere somewhere I've, I've yet to open it up i was up. gonna say i've got it in my fridge yeah there you go but 
Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the conversation, and I thought it was interesting to learn about, you know, what what they're doing with yeast. The fact that they don't really use a, a strict bourbon yeast as mm-hmm. their standard mm-hmm. procedure, or you know, for for fermentation. The, the fact that they're still set up is wholly unique to to basically the entire bourbon industry. I thought that was very cool. Um, yeah, and I'll just get back to it. I thought he was a fascinating dude and an easy person to talk with. That's always nice. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I'm excited to be at the distillery, get to eyeball him, get to eyeball Alex, get to see the setup. It it always makes a world of difference when you step foot on the property. And obviously through the pandemic, we have been traveling, our listeners haven't been traveling, it's been tough, tough times. And so I've got a little drive north, you've got a little drive northwest. We will be having some fun in Rochester, New York. As if, Jason, you and I have a load of news to share, but because of the way global logistics work and just the world has been working sort of writ large, I feel as if there's some things we want to share now, and there's some things we just want to wait on because remember when we talked about backwoods and then a year later it arrived to the U.S. or somewhere around there? Um I there's do remember so, that, Joshua. There's so much going on. And, and remember when it then sold out in 48 hours? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sipping it now. Uh, there's, uh, there's so much going on, but I feel as if we need to release news in dribs and in drabs. And so I'm going to ask you, just like I asked you in our last episode, you're, you're going to lead the news segment here. To your knowledge, do we or do we not need to wake the paperboy? Definitely do not. All right. That's good. Because fuck if he's been just pissed off every time. Every time. I'm almost ready to hire a new newsboy. Almost ready. Almost ready. I t- tell you, dude, if there's another one out there, I'd be, I'd be up for another uh, round of interviews. <laughs> So what, what what are your qualifications for being a newsboy? Extra, extra. No, okay, yeah, you're not going to work. And and what about you, Jimmy? Extra, extra. All right. Yeah, maybe we just have it's to. It's all too much. Going. It's all like <laughs> ah. They all make my ears bleed, which I understand is the nature of the position is to is it's, to get it's attention. To catch your attention, right? It's just like going to. You know, for, for our fellow um, uh, Jews in, in the audience there, right? You blow the shofar during the high holidays to get your attention, to wake you up. And and the newsboy does the uh, the same thing. I, I think we have yeah. to keep him, especially when there's news of great importance. Not that the news we're about to share isn't of great importance, but when it's of really great importance, like really pay attention. Anyway, Jason, please. For those of you in the US, our calendar has changed from June to July, which means our shipper is back from vacation, Jason is back from vacation, Joshua is back from vacation. 
Elijah will soon be back from a vacation. And it means that those products, those bottlings on the website that have been showing sold out, but if you click through on them, it says stock will return in July. I made that announcement previously. Yes, you did. You will actually be able to buy them once more. And I think that is very exciting news. The Torridon and the Sheriff Muir continue to tick along lovely mm-hmm. as, as little blends. The Beanley continues to tick along as a lovely Australian rum. But I think the one that I'm seeing the most hubbub about. <laughs> I like that word or that phrase, hubbub. I thought you might like that. Yep. I actually said it in homage to our paperboy, and then I remembered we didn't actually start this segment with the paperboy. Oh, yeah, because you're like, what's the hubbub? Yeah. Right? The hubbub. So the response around the Virginia Distillery Company bottling has really taken on a life of its own. And I'm, in retrospect, perhaps in hindsight, quite happy that we that we actually pulled that from mm-hmm. the website with about 100 bottles remaining. So, obviously, our LA shipper was on vacation, so there wasn't a way to get them out yeah. to the nation members. But what it did was it allowed people who had purchased it to receive it and try it and fall in love with it the way we fell in love with mm-hmm. it. So, so the fact that that will be going live once more on the website... And we will be able to ship that again across the U.S. Really, really cool. So, so there you go. That I've covered four. Are you looking at the website? Do we have another one that I've forgotten? Well, no, I, I wasn't looking at the website. I was, I was looking at uh, a message that I received hmm. not too long ago. I, I don't want to attribute a name to this person. <laughs> Uh, because he's he's about to post his review on it, and but he reached out to me just sort of out of the blue, and uh, and it just said, "This SCN VDC bottling is doing its best Glenn Farkless impression." Mm-hmm. I loved that because when you and I tasted it. If, if you'll recall, I kept on thinking, man, this reminds me of that Master of Malt nine-year-old, the, the Movember mm-hmm. one that I think was like in mm-hmm. 2009 or 2011 bottling, something like that. And, uh, and, but, and it, it, what I loved about that is it was a thought that you and I had, and then just out of the blue, he, he, he said the same thing. It's like, man, this is like a killer Glenn Farkless. And so... I'm going to wait for him to post his review. I just really loved receiving that message out of the blue, and I wanted to share it with you and the listeners. That is fantastic. And I'm going to pull the exact same card you just did, <laughs> but, but from a different reviewer that is forthcoming. Drinks four times its age, shades of old Macallan and Glenfarclas. Wow. There's a lot more words around that. Those are the words I'm sharing. And so, but but, but again, right? I don't think we're speaking out of school here. Mm -mm. When you and I tasted it, 
when you and I did our video for it, when you and I pitched it, we talked about these allusions to to Scotland and yeah. to older style yeah. and big sherry. At the same time, it's still VDC spirit. Without a doubt, yes. Without, a, thank you for right. bringing that up. Yes, and that that's the aspect that I still like about it is. Is it a bit like a Glenfarclas, a Macallan, a Tamdu, um, you know, a heavily sherried Glenlivet, for heaven's sakes. I've got a good one of those on my shelf. Yeah, but there, there's something about it, too. And I like the way, and I know the, I know the person you're talking about who, who sent that message. And what I like about what he said there, and, and I'm going to choose my words very carefully here, is he talks about it being... Old style Macallan. Now I'm not going to say. Oh, here listen, comes. Listen, here ev- comes. everybody has their own tastes, what they like and what they don't like. <laughs> Modern Macallan doesn't tick the boxes for me the way 70s, 80s Macallan does, and this makes me think of that in a way. It just seems old school. That's all. It just seems old school. It's not that modern McCallan is bad. It's just that it's different. That is all. Well, so I'm going to focus on the positive from what you just said. Well, I thought is, I was being very positive. The VDC <laughs> has an old school presence yeah, to it. Yeah, 100%. And I, and I think if you look at that Spanish oak sherry butt that held Oloroso and then Pedro Jimenez Sherry. Mm, mm -hmm. It wasn't seasoning, right? Yeah, yeah. It was actual maturation of these products in that wood. Yes. Which then came to the US and had a Virginia climate helping it pass in and out of those staves. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's not five years old. (laughs) Okay, listen... It is five years old, but <laughs> but that maturation, just like we've learned with with Amro, just like we've learned with milk and honey, milk and, yeah, exactly. You get you get radically different profiles in these radically different climates, and I'm not surprised to have you know reviewers say, "Wow, that that really has an older presence to it." Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it makes perfect sense from from everything we know about the the hard and fast facts surrounding it. But anyway, you and I are, are starting to wax lyrical because we do love it very much. I'll, I'll throw this in for, for listeners, and, and I love it when listeners share this journey with us. We have started a conversation around the next VDC selection. Mm-hmm. And I'm feeling a little bit like back when we had made our Benria Kilhoman Aaron selections for mm-hmm. our first SCN release online way back in the day, mm-hmm. and <coughs> they were remarkable, wonderful, delicious. All the they things. resonated. Yep. And we said, we've got to do that again. <laughs> we've got to we've got to do our <laughs> second launch. And then we did the Dalmore, the Lafroig. And the Glen Elgin. The Glen Elgin, that's right. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so now here we are having conversations and and we're going to explore STR. 
Shave Toasted Richard. We are going to explore First Fill Bourbon. Uh, we're going to explore some other projects they've got floating around the warehouses down there. I really like that you bring that up because I think what you're saying without saying it is despite the cask or regardless of what cask the spirit is in, the spirit is of such great quality. And I know you were at the distillery and you were going around with Amanda tasting all of these casks and, and they were all flooring you left, right, and center. It's because they make phenomenal spirit. They've got a great wood management program. And I, I think, you know, similar to what we've done with Westland where we showed a variety of different mm-hmm. wood types, mm-hmm. we're able to do the same, you know, thank God with the relationship we have with them to show people different sides of Virginia Distillery Company. Well, and if the comparison with the the sherry maturation is to Glenfarclas, Macallan, Tamdu, etc., <laughs> the comparison with the first Phil Bourbon is to Glen Murray. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that's good. Cask strength, Glen Murray, where everything is allowed to just pop. And shine. Well, oh yeah. I'm even thinking of the the ex bourbon cask Glen Murray that we've released in the nation yeah, yeah. that people still ask about. And so, yeah. I, on one hand, personally, I, I think it's it's a high honor to say this is as good as the best I've had in Scotland by Scottish producers. Mm-hmm. On the other hand. I'm cautious of this is really good American single malt that is really representing its category incredibly well. You know, what, and this is the final thing that I'll say about it because I know we need to get to our, to our other thing that we promised our listeners is when we released this one, and this is the first time I've really, well... I'm sure it's been said before. It just seems to be more prominent now is when we released this whiskey, I find more and more people championing the idea of American single malt, right? And, and when you look in our face, our, you know, single cast nation, you know, private members group, people are saying, yeah, American single malt, they're really, calling out the category and then as you look around different reviewing websites or different you know facebook groups or what have you people are saying man i love what's happening with american single malt it really is coming into its own and and it's so nice to be a part of that yeah i i agree with you wholeheartedly I, i see the exact point you're making Let's not lose sight of the fact that with the nation behind us, our last two Westlands had to be sold via lottery. Yeah, right. American single malt <laughs> being sold via lottery, right? And so, and so I think on one hand, you've got the TTB, you've got the hard work being done by Steve Hawley as president and his, you know, acronym that I can never remember, ASM, BDSM, LBT, S- uh, yeah. everything he's worked diligently yeah. for. SNM, something or other. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. The American Single Malt Whiskey Commission, something like that. Sure, that checks out. Consortium. 
Yeah, we did joke about it being consumption, didn't we? Um, but hopefully Steve Holly doesn't get too mad, so we are kind of you know giving him some kudos here. But but the work being done there and having many more American single malt producers come on board. And I know I said the last thing would be the last thing, but this is my last thing. Me being a the Scotchophile that I am mm-hmm. gave our seven-year-old Westland, the cask 437 from First Fill Bourbon, that was my favorite single cast nation whiskey of the year. Like Normally, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm ignoring everything else, but it's quite clear that I prefer scotch whiskey almost over every everything. And that just won my heart. I think it was just such a perfect bottling. That was a 10 out of 10 for me. I just thought it was perfect. So... It's clear these producers are doing something special, and I'm just glad so many other people are now seeing that, like you said, to the tune of us having to put Westlands on lottery. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Yep. And we've still got Culperworks to come. We've still got Westward to come. We've still got other American single malt relationships that we're, that we're forging um, every day. We got more coming from Westland at some point. It's yeah. yeah. You you and I have said it multiple times and I and I'll get out of here on this. It's an exciting time to be around the birth of an entire category in the United States. Who gets to cut the umbilical cord though? I mean that's is it you? Is it me? Who is it? Matt Hoffman. Matt He's got Hoffman. the beard. There you go. He's got the beard. Listen you and I have some whiskey that we need to taste together and share our notes with the listeners. So this was our little surprise. Um, I can't remember if, if it was mentioned in the interview. And, and so that's, that's my little hint to everybody that I, that I haven't edited the interview yet. Um, but we have, we, Jason, Joshua, Jess, and, and Elijah have selected four casks from Black Button Distillery. And they're all 23-gallon casks. And we married them together to create a larger Black Button release. I think there's going to be about 400 bottles coming for this release. So it'll be a larger bourbon release. And, And again, unlike people like Billy Walker, Dr. Bill Lumsden... You know, the list can go on. We are not master blenders, but over the past 11 years or so, you and I have put together a few different projects where we blended various American whiskeys. We've blended some Scotch whiskeys together, and we've created what we thought were wonderfully delicious offerings. I like to say we dabble. We dabble. Oh, I like that. We dabble. We dabble with great success. How's that? Oh, now you're getting American on me. Now I like it. And so so we have these four barrels, again, 23 gallons, uh, a total of 400 bottles um, for, for the overall offering. And, and I wanted to share with our listeners some of our tasting notes and some of the details around the offering. So I'm going to, hopefully, I don't know if the listeners can hear this, but... I swear I didn't pee. Did you hear that? (laughs) Just a little. (laughs) First off, there there was when we wrote our notes, Jason, I loved the the color 
that you came up with and the color you call us. What would it? I'll let you use it in your in your transatlantic Scottish accent, Jason. <laughs> so the reason that I'm laughing is every time you you and I do these blind tastings and we say things to each other like, "Look at the color on that on an audio pad cost." <laughs> Jess gives me such a hard time for that. And so the fact that you and I, and we, we have to start talking about the color because the color is remarkable. And, and when nation members in the US buy these bottles, they're going to be amazed by the color too. But it's it's this remarkable glistening ruby. Oh, oh say it and again, I've Jason. Never, Hold on. I've never written that before, <laughs> ever. I, I'm, a big, I'm a big sanguine copper you are, guy. You are a sanguine copper right? guy. You've never been a glistening ruby guy. Right, I'm a I'm a burnt amber kind mm-hmm. of guy. Mm-hmm. Right, these these are places burnished brass. Sometimes you've used burnished brass. I love mm-hmm. a lot, mm-hmm. and so I've never written glistening ruby, but I couldn't think of anything else when I put this together. I'm also, and I'm not ashamed to admit it, I am a huge Wizard of Oz fan. Huge, have been since I was a little tiny <sighs> lad. Five, six years old. Yeah. It was on the telly. Yeah. The Wicked Witch was frightening. The flying monkeys were oh my frightening. Yeah. I was that kid watching it from behind the, the couch, from behind the sofa. I love, love, love The Wizard of Oz. And so glistening ruby in homage to someone's slippers in so, that movie. Well, let me ask you really quickly. So so we <laughs> We're not getting sidetracked. No, 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 no. Real quick sidetrack. <laughs> this is a Just, this is an episode of sidetracks. Yes. So we have our Thanksgiving traditions, right? I mean, we're, we're again, I said it earlier, I'm an American. I like my American holidays. My favorite one is Thanksgiving. And so we have two traditions. We listen to... We Dark listen, Side of the Moon. <laughs> no, we don't listen to <laughs> And we moon. pair it. <laughs> <laughs> we listen to Arlo Guthrie's Alice's Restaurant. Absolutely. Yep, 100%. I'm right there with you. You have to. And then we watch Wizard of Oz. That is just a Thanksgiving movie to watch. Mm -hmm. And I I wonder, do do you have any Thanksgiving traditions? Is that when you, do you rewatch Wizard of Oz all the time? I wouldn't say all the time, but... You can imagine for a young man who grew up in Scotland without Thanksgiving that December is is where most uh, of my winter traditions lie. Okay. Yeah. My impending winter traditions lie. Yep. And so Wizard of Oz for me is is really a December. Oh, okay. Sit down. Now it's pour a wee dram, watch it in that month. Mm-hmm. But I really I really do love that movie. Any time of the year. Okay. Okay. So I, I had to know because I, I I'm a, not only am I an American, I'm a Jew. And you know what they say. We, we Jews love our traditions. No, it's good to have them. It's good to know where you are in the, yeah. in the season. Oh, man. So. Oh, gosh. So. Here's a note that grabs me off the bat, and, and this is coming from very recent memory and something that my daughter Delma just discovered. So while we were in Montreal, or on our way up to Montreal, we, we, we drove through Vermont. We stopped at the Vermont Country Store, and she got a pack of clove gum. 
and I'm getting that 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 it's it's not as intense as clove gum, but the clove is right there, and it, it's so pleasant. As we discussed with Ian McAllister a couple of episodes ago, mm-hmm. back when Jess and I were at the Glen Scotia Distillery, I we've made such a mistake over the years, certainly for us in Scotland, and I'll, I'll hang my hat on that one, for us in Scotland over the years, over the decades, bourbon has been considered pretty much of a muchness. You get one bourbon, it does this. You get another bourbon, it does pretty much the same thing. You get a third bourbon, it does pretty much the same thing. As Ian was saying, if, if you go from cask to cask and you go from producer to producer, you will see differences mm. in how a bourbon has been put together. Yeah, of course, sure. And, and each time, and I, and I have been pretty open about this over the last decade, is I've, I've really conducted my own bourbon journey mm. as a co-owner of Single Cast Nation. Yeah. Yep. And when I experience this black button bourbon, it reiterates what Ian McAllister was savvy enough <laughs> oh, to like point that. out. Yeah. Yep. Is is this a bourbon? Check. Is it like every other bourbon out there? No. Is there such a thing as every other bourbon out there? No. no. <laughs> right? <laughs> and the, the particular part of the bourbon map that this black button bourbon occupies... Mm-hmm. Fits my wheelhouse so beautifully. Okay. And to have the clove that you just mentioned. Yeah. But also to have cinnamon, cocoa powder, and dried cherries. Mm. And I and now I I can't not think of backwoods when I see dried cherries and, <laughs> and cocoa powder, right? We we talked about chocolate cherries yeah. Yeah. in that backwoods. Yep. And that's a rye. Constantly. Right? Yeah. And that's exactly. a rye. Yeah. Right? To have that component on the nose of this black button just makes me <coughs> very emotional. That just makes me so very happy. Well, I, I like that you bring up backwoods as you're talking about this because, similar to the backwoods on this black button, my gosh. Whew, I, we're going to have a tough time getting these two straight. But what what I loved about the both of them, despite them being wildly different from one another, right? One's an Australian rye from an extra recharged Shiraz cask. This is a, an American, you know, New York bourbon from New Chard Oak. The thing that these two have in common is that the wood, the oak never overtakes you mm-hmm. get the grain mm-hmm. but you're not getting the grain and, and I've heard some you know especially you know you hear this at festivals you hear this at tastings there's there's and we've talked about this over the years in the podcast right you talk about craft whiskey and that can sometimes be pejorative because is it being aged too fast and is the cask too small and you know all this and and, and the idea is <laughs> is there's so much oak, but the grain isn't integrated. And what I love about this is not only is the grain completely integrated with the oak, 
it's inc- it, it's still quite noticeable, right? I, I'm getting the flavor from the grain. It's not hidden. It's not all oak that's been sort of spread thin on some toast. It, it, you know what I mean? Like it, it's still there saying, hi, I'm here. How you doing? How do I taste? You know, and I really enjoy that both in this black button and in our backwoods. What's the thing we know about the 23 gallon size maturation is it will give you rapid color but it'll also give you rapid oak Mm -hmm. and it it'll really in my experience i'm not going to put words in your mouth in my experience it'll really beat the spirit to death and oh yeah yeah yeah. it can it can do not always but it can do sure right and if you gave me this sample blind, I would not be thinking 23-gallon maturation. No, 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 not at all. No. This this has a roundness. It has a fruitiness. It has a sweetness. And, and, I, and I really like the point you went to, to great length to, to make. That, that really sounded sarcastic, and I was not being sarcastic. That <laughs> um, really wasn't. Um, but, but I think you, you do a good job of saying... The oak is here. It's not overwhelming in the slightest. Right. I mean, right. Think think about how you and I have talked about Scotch whiskey since we met. Both of us feel Scotch whiskey shines in first fill bourbon casks because the wood is not overtaking the spirit. You can get a sense of all that the grain is doing and all that the yeast is doing, and it's only complemented or framed by the oak, right? And the Mm -hmm. same is ringing true here. Nothing's being hidden, and I'm loving that. And as you were talking, I took another sip, and I was absolutely taken by another note. Uh, Not not to get too maudlin here, but I was at my my uncle's funeral um, just over the weekend, and uh, Mary, you know, uncle by marriage, Italian, Sicilian to be specific. And afterwards, there was a celebration of life uh, gathering. Mm. And of course, there's all these Italian cookies. And there were some homemade (laughs) anisette cookies that were that that I just love. And my my grandmother on my stepdad's (laughs) side used to make these anisette cookies, right? That almond cookie with the with the mm-hmm. coating, that, that sort of like white glaze coating. And I'm getting that across the palate. And that's comfort to me. That is just like, back to you with when do I watch Wizard of Oz? It's during December. It was dur- during December when I would eat those anisette cookies. Mm. And, and I'm just back to that note here. As I taste this... Yeah. And I'm thinking of the bourbon category. I'm thinking to myself, this is such a Jason and Joshua pick. <laughs> and as we're as we're talking about the presence of the fruit, as we're talking about the way in which the sweetness manifests itself, as we talk about the spirit being clear while having a frame from the oak. Mm-hmm. This is so us. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And I don't think I've ever said that before. Just like glistening ruby uh, was a brand new one for me. 
I don't think I've really looked at one of our selections and said, oh, that's us. That, that's got our huh. pick, our yeah, palate stamped right over the top of it. But as I taste this with you yeah. and, and the dear listeners on the podcast, this is us in a glass. This is what we pick. That's so interesting. Yeah, we'll pick a cast and we'll say, that's good. That's good for bottling. Let's move on, right? But we've never really gotten down to saying, oh, that's like you could tell that would be our pick. That you could tell we would put that together. That's interesting. I like that. I like that a lot. It could be the fact that I've recently consumed an entire bottle of our Backwoods Heritage Rye (laughs) with um, a group of friends. (laughs) But I, I really think our Catoctin Creek picks into our backwards pick mm. into this black button. Yeah, yeah. I, I, would, I would potentially leave the VDC out of that because of everything that Spanish Oak was doing. But I think those three from rye to rye and into bourbon with the black yeah. button, I think it really speaks to what we like and, and what we go looking for. So you you were talking about dried cherries on the nose and across the palate. I'm getting that, and and I'm going to ask you this because I don't know really how to pronounce this the proper way. I'm getting like qual like good quality, not 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 the ones with the stems on it that are just delicious enough and blah blah blah, but like good maraschino cherries or are they maraschino mm-hmm. cherries? I play it safe. I go with maraschino. I, I yeah. think it's a little bit like people who say Barcelona. You might oh, be right, yeah. but I think you're making it sound worse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like people from Barcelona can say Barcelona, but you're not from All Barcelona, so you should it. say Barcelona. Yeah, okay, got it, got it. I don't um, know if that's right or wrong. I just, I just yeah. think it's precious. But it's it's so nice uh, across the palate, like getting getting that sort of sweet almond cookie the maraschino cherries and it's it's drying across the palate but never astringent right that that oak is there but it's never astringent by any stretch because there's that you also got that sort of good oily texture that we go for as well yeah and I, i'm being a hundred percent serious and a hundred percent honest normally when somebody tells you that you know that means you're usually not motive. honest, you filthy liar. Right, yeah. right. I just, I am now actively searching out 23-gallon cask <laughs> attributes in this. Yeah. And yeah, I'm exist. not finding them. And I feel, I feel like I don't know where I stand anymore, Joshua. This is... Here's the thing. It, it, it's, I, I love that we've both searched for it and we didn't find it, I I think back to what we said about Virginia Distillery Company is it's clear that that Black Button's spirit is of quality and that their wood management program is also well thought out. They know what they're doing. There's no doubt about it. Listen, these are four of many casks that, that we've tasted. It's not as if the other casks that we tasted weren't good. They were all very good. We were looking to do something very specific. And so we selected these ones. Like tasting throughout all of those samples, I was pleased with every every last one of them. Two last things for you. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to talk about the finish 
but I remember, and, and then we'll get out of here. And, and there's and something, we'll something, yeah. Um, cute. Um, Thank I remember you. when we were originally putting our notes together, you had brought forth this window putty note on the nose. Mm-hmm. And and I wonder if you could just expand on how that fits with this this cinnamon, this clove, these, you know, that sort of cherry kind of note coming through. Yeah, f- certainly the the window because that's a you putty. note. That's not a me note. That's a you note. <laughs> yeah, the the window putty, sometimes called typist razor for the really old people amongst us, oh. um, can can lend a certain industrial note that, you know, it's not identical, but for some people, latex gloves become something mm. that they mention. Um, it, it can provide an industrial note that almost firms up the fruit and the spice ah. and the sweetness going on in there. Yeah, yeah. Where I don't know if that's a cask, component i don't know if that's a spirit component but you know i i think of you know long long term with someone like glenn glass in scotland where yeah. if you got a window putty note an industrial note it could be a hard water note yeah sure yep. within within a spirit i don't know if that holds true in america i wouldn't i wouldn't want to say enough about uh, black buttons water even though I, I feel like we talked to jason about it in the chitty chat you know, not doing a good job of segmenting this with today's interview. <laughs> uh, as you just heard him say, I believe. Um, <laughs> and so so partly you've got that window putty going on, going on in there that's firming up other qualities. To my mind, you've also got these fresh pencil shavings mm. that are firming up other qualities as well. Yeah. And so it... It could be a bit of the oak, it could be a bit of the spirit, and then you're left with other components to, to draw your attention. It could also be a rye thing. I've always thought about fresh pencil shavings being a, a rye attribute. Perhaps that window putty could be coming from the rye in the, in the four grain mash bill. Well, let's just really quickly for the listeners out there who are interested in mash bills and, and statistics around what's behind this. The, the mash bill is listed, right? So it's 60% corn, 20% wheat, 11% malted barley, and 9% rye. And so, yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. You know, it, you know, back to the many casts that we've bottled from Wild Turkey who have a specific mash bill that never, ever changes... It's interesting how sometimes the rye really comes through or the barley mm-hmm. really comes through because of how the spirit's interacting with the wood or, or you know, warehouse placement, you know, things like that. So yep. that, that, that's an interesting point. I'd be curious to know if that's where your note came from. Anyway, um, I, I just, I, the last thing I wanted to say is as you were talking about that, I was focusing on the finish. And one of the things that I love, because we're about to finish this, I wasn't focusing on the finish as in I wanted you to finish. But anyway, uh, it's this... Skip to the end. (laughs) It's this cinnamon note that just shines through. And it's not 
the spicy cinnamon. It's that no. warm cinnamon that you would put on a latte or a cappuccino yeah. or, or what have you. Yeah. It's that warm cinnamon that just sticks around. Bit of ginger as well, which I really like. I like subtle spice. Um, I cannot wait for this to be released. Agreed. No, I, I agreed wholeheartedly. Just like we said in, in one of our most recent episodes, we will be finalizing the price on it before it goes live, but do look for it in the US uh, within July, perhaps. <laughs> Little Joshua moment there. Perhaps <laughs> the day after this episode goes live, but... Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, that, that's right. I forgot we bottled it. I forgot it's ready to sell. I can't wait yeah. to, to put this in front of people. It is. Oh, it's 100% ready. It's bottled. It's labeled. It's sitting in California. It is ready to go. And I don't think that number of bottles is going to hang around very long. But this is our first project with Black Button. It will yeah. not be our last. Beauty. We're having a year of first projects that will not be our last Beauty. with uh, various American-based distilleries. And it's, yeah, it's, been a, it's been an interesting 2022 as we work our way around uh, global logistics. So, okay, before we go down that rabbit hole. Listen, we, you and I do need to get out here. I, I want to mention two things really quickly. Um, as people know, well, some people know, maybe not everybody on this podcast, podcast, uh, the listeners, uh, we have put a little bottle up for potential winning. We've asked people, why don't you make a comment on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review, make a comment, and you're in the running to win a bottle of one of our Good Ride uh, bourbons. So we've, we've received a lot of comments, which has been wow, fantastic. That's huge. Yep. We, we're officially at a hundred, at least as of today, we're officially at a hundred reviews and have Good had grief. some, some, some really great comments. I wanted to read one of those and, and, and then also remind people that, that they, they should be leaving us reviews and we thank them <laughs> for the reviews that they leave. And then, and then quickly we got a, um, a comment on our episode with Jerry Duggan that I thought was so really well said. Mm. And so, so I want to bring those up and then we can get out of here. So, so the, the one that I want to bring up uh, was posted in this, again, this is Apple Podcast Review. This is the hundredth review, so that's why I'm highlighting this one. And this was on June 28th, day after your birthday. It's actually my mom's birthday. She turned 75 this year. Mazel. Mazel. A five-star review from Zach Whiskey, Z-A-C. And you're going to love this, Jason. You, given, the, given how many f- swear words that we say, the subject title is Family Road Trip Approved. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this person, Mr. <laughs> Zach Whiskey, I'm assuming it's a mister. Actually, I know it's a mister because he, he emailed us. Says, I discovered this podcast before a spring break road trip from OKC 
I guess that's oh, nice. Oklahoma City. To that's ABQ, say, yeah. Albuquerque. Ooh. And he goes on, he says, Tombstone, Tucson, Flagstaff, and back. So naturally downloaded two years worth of episodes. At first I thought he said just two episodes. but <laughs> No, he got through one episode. <laughs> downloaded two years, got through one. <laughs> You're going to love this, Jason. He says, it's a great balance of banter, laughs, news, and industry info. Even my 11 and 13-year-old daughters found it interesting. Now here's where it gets it. Here's where Those it gets poor it. young women. Uh-huh. <laughs> he said, and this is a, a parenthetical uh, comment. He says, "They said Jason and Joshua. I'm sure they meant Joshua, Jason. They said Jason and <laughs> they're Joshua. Young. They're young, Joshua. They're young. <laughs> they are young. Uh, remind, they'll learn. They'll learn. Reminded them of the quote." BuzzFeed unsolved guys, and then he did the the emoji, which is of the guy doing yeah. the shrug with the hands up. <laughs> Currently doing the shrug right now. Okay. He's like, yeah, who's that? They know because they're eleven and thirteen. Wow. Um, and then and then he ends it off saying five stars. So Mr. Zach Whiskey, uh, Mr. Zach Whiskey's children, uh, eleven and thirteen. <laughs> we thank you both. We thank all three of you. What am I doing? This is the problem with drinking whiskey. I can't count. We thank all three of you uh, for the nice things you had to say. And, and thank you, too, for, for giving uh, a five-star review and for com- commenting. We really appreciate that. So here's the I last. I your dad making you listen to a, dad, a whiskey podcast. Don't dad, I? do we have to listen to whiskey again? <laughs> oh, well, I'm honored that it was us, at least. So thank you. Yes. We also got a review, and this is actually on YouTube, and this was for our Jerry Duggan episode, and it's by uh, one Javier Acosta, who, who's been pretty active in Facebook and, and elsewhere, and, and he says, I've missed the intervening years when Jerry Duggan wrote and brought his interest into comics just wasn't my generation as I was maybe 10 years ahead of him. What I still have to give a nod to is the entire Marvel Universe handling of the movies over the past decade. The integration of the history I remember reading about and the introduction of the new idea of the, quote, multiverse, making the remakes slash rehashes slash reboots of series viable for a generation of readers. The vision alone I find jaw-dropping. Those Marvel movies did bring me back into the scene. Very enjoyable, and should be, and it should be said. And if I chew on this further, Jerry is of my age group. He was very much the same kid I was scooping up every week's releases and seeing the renaissance, that image, and Valiant, two great comic labels, I should add, uh, brought to the industry in the early 90s. I am definitely of the same age of all these, as you, as are you. And finally, he says, glad to see he followed his passion and made it his career. Cheers, folks. The reason why I brought that up is because it's clear, you know, w- when we do these detours, there's mm-hmm. always a bit of hesitation that will this translate to the whiskey folk? And he's talking just like I would. This is someone who grew up on comic books, not just on Marvel, not just on DC, but on small labels as well. And, and, and it was a passion. 
and and so I wanted to to share that, and it was really nice as someone similar to himself, who kind of was really into comics and then got away from it for a little while. Reed got married, had a kid, had kids, bought a house, started a business, <laughs> so on and so forth. Right, missed out on some of these years that he missed out on. It's it's just nice again. It's that little bit of confirmation that sometimes these detours are okay because we're speaking to people who obviously have more interests than just whiskey. No, absolutely. And I think the thing we've said previously is we've even heard from fans of the podcast, listeners of the podcast, who skip the ones Mm. that aren't about whiskey directly. Yeah, yep. And then again, to use a fun word that I used earlier in the podcast... And then the hubbub that builds around those D2 episodes has them returning, yeah. at which point they say, wow, that was... I believe we said way, way weeks ago at the start of today's episode, when, when we said when we go in cold to some of these interviews, we don't know what's about to happen. Mm. And then mm-hmm. we come out of it going, wow, wow. Yeah. We've heard that from some of these D2 episodes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. When our regular... Yeah. Listeners have said, yeah, it wasn't whiskey. I wasn't overly interested. Boy, I'm glad I did. I'm really glad I went back into that. 100%. And, we, and you know, we received some great comments from, from Ian Bruce and Dr. Matt Bishop and, and, and a bunch of private messages as well. So, it, again, it, it's really nice that people are following us on this journey. And we plan on making a few more detours as the year goes on, maybe as season seven continues. Um, yeah. <laughs> I like your season seven continues while we're in season six. Well, because it's going to continue. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I, mean, I quit. It, 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 yeah. We, we, uh, listeners, we are not ending with season six. There will be a season seven to come. See, that's my way of, of, of comforting Allegedly. your listeners. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. Um, so listen, Jason, you have to cook food for your family. I have <laughs> to true. go to a synagogue service. It's all um, true. <laughs> it has been a joy being back with you again after you being Indeed. away in the wilderness completely Indeed. unattached uh it's been a good catch-up you make it sound like spring break completely unattached no 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 i, I was still married <laughs> still had two kids i, I can't wait just, just in to, case tomorrow tunes into this no that's i not can't wait to, to watch the episode of jason Go, gone wild <laughs> spring break episode that 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 bear was an aggressive spooner i'll tell you that much <laughs> i'll tell you that much he's a little spoon or the big spoon I, I can't say anymore. You're more than I've said too much. <laughs> uh, Jason, it, it has been a blast. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, of course, to, to Jason Barrett and to our listeners, as always, to everybody who's written in, everybody who's given us reviews. Please continue to do so. And uh, I'll see you next week for an extra extra. And I'll see you in a couple weeks for yet another One Nation Under Whiskey. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, my clink wins.